Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, December 4, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Do we want to make this a sports-centric show this morning? Uh, I think we have some sports to talk about. Well, I mean, the, the, the social media just blew up yesterday, and I actually um, kind of participated <laughs> oh, in you? some of that. I normally, because I'm such, yeah, I mean, being a distinguished gentleman, like I am, it's hard for me to get down to the gutter and and you know in the in the um in the throes of some of the um some of the sports controversy oh, yeah. that happened over the uh, <laughs> over the weekend because I'm such a distinguished gentleman I would never express myself in those disrespectful mm-hmm. um, ways mm-hmm. but there's so many places to go with this story um for those that don't care it doesn't matter but if you're a college football bozo. As our good friend Bad Boy uh, refers to many guilty. of us as. I'm guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Just because I like to watch. I don't know if I'm as guilty as I once was, but I'm still guilty as charged. But um, the college football playoff announcement was yesterday at about noon, and you knew this was coming. I mean, I don't know how you didn't see this coming from, or I did. I mean, let me back up. I mean, I was kind of pulling for those conference championship games to end up like they did because I wanted to see some chaos in this uh, college football playoff situation. So, so did Florida State get screwed or not? They did. Yeah. But if Alabama didn't get in, would they have gotten screwed or not? They would have. Yeah, power five, four yeah. teams. <laughs> power five, four teams. What we basically saw yesterday, in my humble opinion, I mean, we did away with the, the Pac-12 this year. All four teams next year will be SEC or Big Ten teams. Right? I mean, Washington and Oregon joined the Big Ten which will be the big, you know, 104. Pretty likely, yes. Yeah, and then um, and then the Oklahoma-Texas joined the SEC. So the four teams next year will be in two conferences, and that's kind of what we said over and over. I don't know if there's this big, giant conspiracy. Um, you know, there, there's there's the um, – and I get it. I mean, there, there's the Clemson fans who are members of the ACC and want to get their fair treatment of their conference. Um, they felt Florida State won every game – uh, Florida State was a conference champion. Florida State did everything they could do, and you're going to penalize them for a kid getting hurt, and you don't know how good they're going to be with this, with or without their second or third or third string quarterback. And and you could you could debate on what is the primary objective of the committee, because if the primary objective of the committee is to get the four best teams, the team that got screwed is Georgia. True. But I'll say that again. If the primary objective is to get the four best teams, I've watched a lot of college football this year. Um, you're not going to convince me Georgia's not one of the four best teams. I mean, there's just no way. When, when 28, 29 games in a row um, lose at a kind of a neutral side, I mean, it more favors Georgia, of course, but you lose in a conference championship game uh, of the conference that has won 13 of the last 17 national championships. Let me say that again. 13 of the last 17 National championships have been won by a team of the SEC. So you can't believe that in that room, or I could, maybe some of you could, I could believe in that room that wouldn't be a, a primary part of the conversation. Are we really going to – I understand what Florida State has done, and they got screwed. I mean, there's Florida State got screwed. But I don't think it's some giant conspiracy that Disney and SEC have, you know, behind the scenes and they're – you know, the, the puppet masters and the, the masters of the universe but are doing you, all these. You did have to wonder, though, with the way they, they set it up, um, did they make the decision based on we can't leave an SEC team out I'm of sure this? that played into it. 
absolutely get played then, into it. Then it, then it is a well, conspiracy I mean, but, but, a little bit but that, that in some way, right? That has to be a part of the conversation. Somebody in the room sitting around the table has to say, hey, are we really going to leave one of these two teams out? Are we leaving both of these teams out? I mean, are we going to really have, have a have a four-team playoff without Alabama or Georgia, uh, the team that represents the conference that has won 13 of the last 17 national championships? Um, it's it's There's no perfect way to do this. It's a little bit we talk about picking judges. What is the least of the bad ways? Well, I mean, we, we've got a little bit of help on the way. 12 teams will qualify next year, and it's going to be hard to argue that the 13th best team is the best team in college football. Um, the 13th best team could get on a run like South Carolina did in basketball. Well, let me ask you this, Rev. The year the Gamecocks went to the Final Four in basketball, did you ever for a moment believe they were one of the four best teams in college basketball? Well, as they, you know, the funny thing is, no. No. <laughs> but but as they kept you know going along, you you start thinking, but maybe they are. Kind of catch lightning in a bottle. Yeah. You, you get hot, you play well, you catch a break, you hit a three-pointer. But like throughout uh, the season, you were, you were nah, saying, oh, it, this well, is a championship. Even, even when they were in the Final Four, I'm saying to myself, there's 20 teams better than South Carolina in basketball. But that's the beauty of March Madness. You get an opportunity to, to wear the glass slipper. That's going to happen when the 12 team or when the playoffs expand from four to 12 team. But yes, I do believe that there were, there were many conversations inside that room about the SEC, but, but I don't think that's a conspiracy. Is it? I mean, I I just, I don't bind. I I think there's a very legitimate argument to be made about Florida state getting in at the, at the expense of whom, because if Georgia had beaten Alabama, guess who gets left out? Florida State. I mean, Texas yeah. is the three seed. Alabama or Florida State were going to be the four seed. So if Georgia beats Alabama, Georgia's one, Michigan's two. Um, who's three? Uh, Texas is uh, Georgia one, Michigan two, Washington three. And you really believe Florida State would have in ahead of Texas? No, of course not. Um, it, it's just... Uh, the, the the committee has a high, high opinion of one conference. And I don't think it's a, a, a grand conspiracy anywhere. Now, I get Disney and ABC and ESPN and television money. And I mean, I understand all that. I certainly am not naive to any of that. Um, but I just think when you look at, well, I'll give you an example. Georgia and Florida State are playing in the Orange Bowl. Am I right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. And the line yep. is Georgia favored by two touchdowns. Yep. I mean, that's what the, the wise guys think. I mean, do you really believe the wise guys are in on a conspiracy? I mean, I can assure you with this, they don't care about, you know, uh, Georgia's uh, uniforms or Florida State's colors, and they don't believe, I mean, they believe green. And I'm not talking about Notre Dame green. I'm talking about <laughs> real green. Um, so when they established Georgia as a 14-point favorite over Florida State, and I don't know how good Florida State is with their starting quarterback. I don't have any idea how much better. I mean, they're obviously better. I mean, they're much better with a starting quarterback. But when, you, when you're in that room and you kind of make a determination, and here's what I would have done. I mean, if I'm in the room, um, I would have probably called a wise guy that I have faith in. And I would have said, hey, if Florida State and Alabama played tomorrow, what, what would the line be? And I think the person would have probably said 10, 12, 14 points. How do you put that? I mean, it's, you see what I mean? It's, I understand it's complicated. And there are reasons to be, to be aggravated. There are reasons to be frustrated. There are reasons to be bothered. 
but I just don't see it being a big conspiracy. And I'm the guys, you don't have to twist my arm, but so hard to get me to believe there's a grand conspiracy. And I'm not an SCC homer. I mean, I, you know, my, my, the, my favorite team is a member of the SCC, but I'm not an SCC homer. Uh, I do believe the SCC has done a better job than anybody else of marketing their brand. I mean, we talk a lot about it just means more, um, you know, the, um, uh, the, the, what were the passion, the, the fan bases, the large stadium, I mean, they, they've done a better job than most of marketing the brand that is the SCC, but I can tell you who we should be angry with. And it's not the people in that committee or on that committee in that room, making uh, that determination. Is it Florida state? Is it Alabama? Is it Georgia? Is Texas a three seed or a four seed? Uh, how much lesser team is Florida State with their second or third quarterback? The people we should be aggravated with are the people that abused the right to run college football for as long as they did. The dinosaurs, the tacky blazer club. Here, That's here. who we should all be angry with, uh, that, that we've gotten ourselves to this point. And here's another embarrassment. You ready for another embarrassment? We won't have college football for roughly a month. I mean, I know we got some minor bowl games, but I mean, these four teams won't play until when? Like January the 1st or something like that? I mean, it's a month or so before they play again. I think it might be late, late December when they play. Um, but we've got, what, three, uh, nearly four weeks uh, of waiting on another important college football game. The, the, the sport that I love and grew up enjoying um, has been run by horrible influences for far too long. And here we are. And you knew you had to see this coming. I mean, if you're a Bama fan, you're going to be bothered if Florida State gets in. You're a Florida State fan. You're going to be bothered. Kirby Smart today is saying, so you're telling me that that team in, my, in that locker room you really believe is not one of the four best teams in America. Well, I'll ask anybody listening to my voice today. I mean, if you know anything about college football, do you really believe there are four teams better than Georgia? Hell no. No way. No. I mean, there's not four teams better than Georgia, but on a given night, they didn't get it done. Alabama did, and Bama gets the nod over over uh, the ACC. If I'm a Clemson fan, I mean, I'm a little, I'm a little wonderment. I mean, I'm, I'm in wonderment about where do I go from here. Um, Clemson is a perennial power. They've been down for a year or two, but they've been a perennial power in this college football playoff era. And they are a part of a conference that looks like they, they've got to, they've got to adjust. I mean, they, they've got to, they've got to do some things here in that conference to revalidate themselves. As, I mean, if, if you if you're a member of a conference and your your champion won every game and got left out of a 14 playoff, what does that say about your league? I mean, I don't. It, it certainly doesn't incriminate the Clemson program. I mean, I've had an up close seat at how good they've been. Florida State seems to have reestablished themselves as a, uh, you know, a power and legitimate contender. But the conference that had a champion that didn't lose a single game won their conference championship fairly convincingly. Um, I mean, they struggled on offense, but they've got a third string, a third string quarterback. I mean, they got left out. And every team in the 14 playoff beginning next year will be a member of the two conferences that we believe have clearly separated themselves uh, from everybody else. 843-661-09. I get it. I understand it. If I were a kind of if I were a Florida State fan, I'd be furious. If I were an ACC fan, 
I'd be aggravated. I don't know if I'd be furious about, you know, one of my one of my conference brethren not making it to the to the big dance. But um but but the people to really be angry with, and I could go into the Alston case. Uh, I don't know if you, anybody, you, if you're a college football fan, you need to read that case. I mean, you really and truly do. I made a note um, yesterday that, uh, well, here we go. You <laughs> got somebody texted me already. Already, so I got three, four, five, six, five people um, texted. <laughs> uh, I, I just, I'll ask the question again. Um, I mean, I understand data and stats and spinning and all that, and I'm as good at that as, as the next guy is. And, and I'm a homer, you know, to some degree. I'm a Gamecock homer. I don't think. I'm as much an SEC homer, but but I'll ask one simple question. If you know anything about college football and Florida State play Georgia or Alabama tomorrow, who's your money on? I mean, say, ask yourself that one. Right. That's the only question you've got to ask. If Florida State were playing, because if the job of the committee is to get the four best teams, I mean, from what I'm understanding, it's not the most deserving teams. Because if it's the most deserving team, if somebody said, before you go in that room as a member of that committee, I want you to make sure you understand with clarity what your mission is. Your mission is to get the most deserving teams. But that's not what I understand the criteria says. The best teams. And there's no way anybody with a straight face can tell me that right now, today, Florida State's as good as Georgia or uh, or Alabama. There's no way. I mean, Georgia's a 14-point favorite. <laughs> yeah, and Georgia's number six on their ranking. Yeah, and they probably should be. But, but as Kirby Smart said, is your job, is, you're telling me, as somebody who follows college football, that you believe George is not one of the four best teams in America. I mean, it, it was, it was, I mean, Georgia, when Georgia and Alabama play, it's like an NFL tryout. I mean, he, he's a first round, I mean, he is too. He's a second round player. He's the, he's a borderline first or second round, but that's got dudes um, everywhere. But once again, the people to be frustrated with are the people that run college football and ran college football in the fashion they did for as long as they get did. That's who goofed it up. I mean, that's real. Now we're we're getting to a little bit better place with this twelve team playoff that will include, um, I don't know, a, a better opportunity for someone like Florida State to prove whether whether they belong or not. But in my left hand, I got most deserving. And if I walk into that room and, and the boss man says, hey, I want you to come out of that room with the four most deserving teams, Florida State's in. But if my job is to go in that room and pick the four best teams on that given day, Washington probably doesn't have a high opinion of me today. And maybe this does make me an SEC homer. I, I'd have Georgia and Alabama, both in the uh, mm-hmm. in the championship game. Yeah, that probably does make me uh, somewhat, <laughs> so somewhat of a uh, – of a homer, I just, I just, I don't. I, maybe it's a, I've not seen Washington play a lot. Maybe that's right. unfair. I've not seen Washington play a lot. Now, the one storyline that hadn't been talked about: if Florida State's getting punished for not having a quarterback, and you know that's the best team, uh, you're not as good when you got your second or third string quarterback as your starter. And Travis was a good player. Why didn't they ding Michigan for cheating? Right. I mean, why? How, how much better is Michigan? because of the very elaborate scheme that they perpetrated against the majority of their quality opponents. Um, we'll find out. I mean, I think Michigan and Alabama will be probably about a pick them by game time. I mean, it may be a point or two one way or the other. I think Texas is a four, four-and-a-half-point favorite. I'm going to come back. I don't want to make this an extended sports show, but I want to come back and read something that Gorsuch said 
in the Austin case and something Kavanaugh said. Um, normally, you have a, a majority opinion and not a concurring opinion. But these justices felt so strongly about the, the 9-0 Austin versus NCAA ruling that they had a majority and a concurring opinion. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. I had it, but now I've lost it. Let me get it again here real quick. Uh, are we having phone trouble or we think we're good with the phones? I think we're good. Should okay. be good. We're good with the phones. Uh, 843-661-0937 is our number. So uh, here you go. You ready? Um, Gorsuch in the – Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion in the Alston, A-L-S-T-O-N versus NCAA case. And Gorsuch said – I mean, I won't read the entire opinion, obviously – a business model that should be flatly illegal in America. Um, Kavanaugh kind of went a little further. You ready? Kavanaugh wrote a concurring opinion. Nowhere else in America can a business get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. <laughs> and under ordinary principles of antitrust law, it is evident. It is evident. It is not evident why college sports should be um, any different. It's um. I mean, the people to be angry with, and, and I mean this sincerely, because if I were a Florida State fan, I'd be furious. If I were a, te- a, a fan of a team of the ACC, I, I would. Those scathing statements, by the way, from the Florida State I mean, athletic they're director doing what they and coach. Do. I mean, they've got to do oh, that. Yeah. they got to stand tall for their team. They did, uh, and I they think, did. I think the most interesting um, and authentic moment of the entire ordeal or unveiling of the teams was when the Michigan, um, when the Michigan team found out it was Alabama there was a big groan. They should have never allowed cameras in that room because <laughs> the second they were talking about, is it going to be Florida State or is it going to be Alabama? And the camera showed Alabama and everybody in that big blue room said, ah, damn, yeah. <laughs> we'd rather play Florida State with a backup quarterback than we had Alabama. They're an old hand, an old hand at this. And look, I mean, we get to play it on the field, right? I mean, Texas plays Washington. Michigan plays Alabama. Um, I, I wish it were 12. I wish Florida State had a chance to prove uh, if they're good or not or that good or not. I wish with all due – I mean, here's here's the beauty of a 12-team playoff. I saw a model yesterday that had Liberty as the 12th team. Why, why does Liberty matter to me? That's where Hugh Freeze was and Jamie Chadwell is. So that's kind of interesting to me. Um, there may be a year in a 12-team playoff that Coastal Carolina – could, you know, um, or our beloved Gamecocks or the Tigers for that matter. You know, you don't have to be perfect during the course of the uh, of the year. You can make a mistake and live to fight another day and end up, you know. I mean, it, to me, it would be great if the South Carolina-Clemson game were a game between, let's say, ninth-rated Clemson and 14th-rated South Carolina. I mean, if Clemson's number nine and South Carolina's number 14, the winner of that game's in the top 12, and you have a chance – to be Cinderella, you have a chance to make a run in a in a college football playoff. But but the Gorsuch, Kavanaugh comments to me were just you talk about scathing. I mean, when you read that majority opinion and then the concurring opinion, it was like every chance those justices got to tell the NCAA how ashamed of themselves they should have been, and they did it in a more scholarly way than I read. But they basically said, "Really, really." So uh, thousands became hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands became millions, millions became hundreds of millions, and hundreds of millions became billion. 
And you still believe the value of the scholarship is commiserate with what the kid uh, brings to the table? The absurdity of that. And um, and anyway, the people to be angry with are the dinosaurs <coughs> Excuse me, who have run college football for as long as they have. Let's go to the phone. Matthew and Sherall, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, I, I caught y'all on what I thought I would, talking about the ball game. The fact that Florida State is on the third quarterback and still winning means that they're a well-rounded team. Just like a lot of people have said, if we're going to go by the quarterback or a running back or something like that, well, I mean, look at Texas. Didn't they play more than one quarterback? I mean, if we're, if we're calling it the best teams, how do you have two one-win teams over an undefeated team who continue to win even after their starting quarterback went down? What do you make of the uh, Las Vegas line having one loss Georgia, a two-touchdown favorite over undefeated Florida State? You know, that's, that's to be determined at this point. But to be honest, that's almost a slap in the face to Florida State. I mean, I think they earn more than that. Really, they should, in my opinion, and, you know, what to say about opinion, <laughs> they should play either Alabama or Georgia in this. The, the question should have been that Florida State should never have been in question. I mean, if everybody's going to say, oh, well, it wouldn't have been a good game, look at TCU last year. They earned their spot. They got to play. I think everybody's on this selection committee, and I, I don't look it up. So apparently, they don't make anything off of it, but they should not be able to ever choose anything like this again. Regardless of going to the 12-team uh, playoff, every individual that voted to keep Florida State out should have no say-so in it from this day on. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. 843 661 0937. That's kind of an interesting opinion. I mean, I don't dispute anything the guy said. That's a legitimate opinion to, to have. I will say this. Going into the weekend, the team that really caused Florida State problems was Louisville. Louisville got smoked by Kentucky, a middle-of-the-pack SEC team. And when Louisville got beat the way they did against Kentucky, it minimized the conference championship game. Had Louisville only had one loss and kind of rolled into town, you know, uh, hot and happy, so to speak, they could have um, they could have said or argued, look at the, the quality win against Louisville. But how do you argue the quality win against Louisville when Louisville just got smoked by, uh, you know, an average, a very average Kentucky team that lost to South Carolina a week earlier? So Kentucky loses to South Carolina one week. The next Saturday, Kentucky beats Louisville. And the next week, Florida State beats Louisville in the ACC championship game 16-6. to How do you not? I mean, if you're in that committee, if you're in the, how do you not bring that as part of the debate? You got to. I mean, that's got to be a part of the debate. Um, I think Clemson drew Kentucky in the Gator Bowl, if I'm not mistaken. December 29, congratulations. And I mean this most diplomatically. Congratulations to Clemson for um, making a bowl game. And I think I read that the Clemson and one other, might have been Ohio State, one or two other teams are the only two or three teams that have been ranked in the top 25 every year since the 14 playoff model began. So reluctantly but diplomatically, I'll say congratulations to the Tigers for being one of, I think, three teams that have every single year been ranked in the top 25 during this 14 playoff era that I think we can all agree 
thankful for a college football fan to expand um, to 12 teams next year. That means Florida State gets in. They have a chance to, you know, to do their job, do their business. The better, I mean, the better hypothetical, the most important hypothetical is what if Travis doesn't get hurt? I mean, what if Travis doesn't get hurt? How impressive are they against Florida? How impressive are they against uh, Louisville? And does an SEC champion get left out? You knew something unprecedented was going to happen. We've never had an undefeated Power 5 Conference champion left out, but we've also never had a 14 playoff without the SEC champion. So we went into that weekend knowing that something that has never happened before is going to happen. But but Florida State fans, don't be mad at um at Alabama. Bama, don't be mad at Florida State. Michigan, be mad at the dinosaurs, the greedy SOBs that ran this very lucrative enterprise in the most selfish and greedy way imaginable. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. It would be fun to kind of um to be uber provocative this morning and try to rile up the uh, the ACC fans, you know, because of Clemson. And I get it. I mean, if you're a Tiger fan, you, you got to be loyal to your league. They're making it hard. I mean, the ACC's making it real hard mm-hmm. for Clemson fans to be loyal to that to that conference because they seem to be a bit in disarray. And yesterday was a bad day for the ACC. I mean, yesterday, I mean, Florida State was a loser, no doubt about it, and they probably, in all honesty, have every right to be furious about what happened to that committee. Um, but but the, the reality is the ACC has never had a lot of swagger in football. But but in an, in an age where Florida State kind of makes itself more relevant than they've been in a long time, you got Florida State and Clemson, both prominent programs, and that conference just can't get the love in, in football. So for the first time in playoff history, a Power 5 undefeated conference champion is set by the wayside in preference to a one-loss other Power 5 um, champion, that being Texas and Alabama. That's a bad day for the league, <laughs> a real bad day for the ACC. Uh, and before we leave the football talk this morning, i got to bring this up just because I, have, I feel like I have to. So the other, if you follow the people I follow on Twitter, uh, the other news of the weekend are all the players that are leaving the Gamecock team and announcing they're going into the portal, including Juice Wells. Now, of course, you ask yourself with the players that you maybe didn't expect to announce, what's up with that? And then, you know, Juice is getting a little extra scrutiny because he had a, you know, a pretty lucrative NIL deal. People are wondering why he didn't play at the end of the season. But regardless, it did not seem like a good weekend for the Gamecocks. Well, I mean, uh, the, the transfer portal is kind of two-faceted. You've got some kids that you know aren't going to play a lot. You sit down with that kid and say, hey, in all honesty – I mean, we're not telling you to leave, but there would be some better opportunities for you at other places. And then you've got the, the you know, kind of scouting other players and trying to bring in other players. And then you've got the players that are productive members of your squad. And you have to figure out a way to incentivize, um, pay them to stay and, uh, and play the game. I'll just say this about Juice. And I know enough to be dangerous. Um, I'll say this about Juice. Uh, no, I'll say is I'll say this about Spencer Rattler and let you read between the lines. Juice and Spencer got more money than anybody at South Carolina, and they probably deserved it. I mean, they were probably the two players that if the Gamecocks were going to have a decent year, you got to figure out a way to get them back in the fold. Spencer Rattler, Juice Wells. I- I'll say this without being negative. You ready? 
Spencer did everything and more that was asked for him to earn, quote, unquote, the dollars that the NILs paid. But I'll just leave it there. Um, Spencer Rattler went above and beyond and did more than was ever asked of him to, to earn as much of that money as he could. Now, now, what is a college quarterback worth? I don't know. I mean, I know what Spencer got paid, and I know he rode around in a pretty nice ride. Uh, but I will say this, and I know this to be true. Every time Spencer was asked to do something in regards to that deal, that contract, honoring that obligation, he went above and beyond. He left there with a good taste in his mouth, and they're proud to have been, mm. you know, as supportive of Spencer Rattler as they were. Um, some players did that. Some players didn't. How about that? How about we just leave it there? Some <laughs> players did exactly what they said they were due and, uh, and in the team's best interest, and some players did not. 843-661-0937 is our number. And I hear you, and I hear you loud and clear, I think. But do you have any comments on the number of players that, that announced they're going into the portal from well, the I mean, South not, Carolina not, team? Not really. I mean, the, the, the three kids that I'd most worry about is Sanders, Hemingway, and um, Huntley. I mean, those are the D linemen. They're not great. I think Tonka said he's staying. Well, he I mean, announced that, that yesterday. It was a little bit of breaking news. I mean, I think all three will stay. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I think all three of the D linemen that they need in the fold will stay. Um, I mean, they've got to go get better, though. Uh, you're five and seven. I mean, if you're five and seven with the roster, what makes you think you go seven and five next year if you don't improve the roster? you got to improve the roster. Um, and Clemson and Carolina both are trying to do that via the portal. And, um, and I would imagine Dabo and his staff are having conversations with players that, you know, they recruited, thought they could turn into legitimate, you know, power five players, and it's not working out for whatever reason. You sit down with the kid and say, hey, you know, we've only got 85 scholarships. You're not going to play much, but but here's an opportunity or two or three out there so they can transfer uh, some of these. Uh, it's, it's, it's NFL front office. I mean, one of these days, somebody's going to understand. I do say a lot of dumb things, but everything I say is not dumb. Some things I say make sense. The team that decides to embrace the new era of college football by recreating the Atlanta Braves front office in college football is going to really enjoy the benefits of the fruits of their labor, so to speak. You can't do it the old way. I mean, you just can't. You've got to, you've got to take the revenue-generating sports, and you've got to separate them. In, in most places, that's football. In some places, it's football and basketball. But, but you've got to build um, c kind of a human infrastructure of talent evaluators and chief financial officers. And, I mean, I, I've argued for a football CEO at South Carolina. Um, I just think you've got to adopt the NFL front office model more than ever. Rev, you're not just recruiting high school kids now. I mean, you're looking at rosters of other teams all over the country, and somebody's got to know, hey, wh what about that safety from Oregon? who's homesick and wants to get back to the South. I mean, how, how do we know, is he good enough to beat our safety out? Is he good enough to come over and get involved in, in the Clemson or Carolina rotation? If so, what's he worth? I mean, what's his slot value? And I just, I just think the teams, and there will be some. Missouri's kind of already done that. I mean, Missouri's already really embraced this new era. And look at what Missouri did. I mean, they're a top 10 program this year because they got real aggressive and progressive and kind of adapting to, um, you know, this ain't Kansas anymore. I mean, this is a new era, and they built somewhat of an NFL front office, and it paid great, great dividends. No question about it. 843 
661-0937 is our number. I want to go into, I mean, I think it's a good day to go into presidential politics. I, I did read over the weekend where Ron DeSantis, and here's how you know the wheels are falling off. DeSantis has a super PAC. Now, he doesn't know anything about it because he can't be affiliated, right, with the super PAC. Right. I mean, he doesn't know anything they do. They never talk. They never oh, yeah. communicate. They never coordinate. But um, Never Back Down hired its third CEO in two weeks, I think Friday. And from what I'm gathering, that person may not be there tomorrow. <laughs> hmm. So it may be George Steinbrenner or Billy Martin. Remember the day Steinbrenner would fire Billy and hire him back and fire yeah. him again and hire him back uh, again? DeSantis has figured out a way to take $150 million and go from 36 in the poll to 17. I mean, he's this election cycles Jeb Bush. It's something about the governor of Florida. I was thinking about this. You know, the former governor of Florida, (laughs) Jeb Bush, former current governor of Florida, uh, Ron DeSantis. But DeSantis is about $148 million in. When he got in and hadn't spent a dollar, he was at about 36, 37%. He spent $148 million, and he's gone from 36 or 7 to 17, 18, 19, depending on what poll you trust or, or have faith in. Take a break. We'll be back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. I want to play something for you. We're talking about Nikki Haley. I mean, obviously, being a former governor of South Carolina, there's certain, I guess, a, a higher degree of interest in her campaign and where it goes from here. I mean, a month ago, we began suggesting that she was trying to declare her path, that it was going to be completely and totally in bed with the establishment. She was going to garner the, the, uh, the support of all these, uh, I don't know the, the, some have names, some don't. I mean, Jamie Dimon doesn't have a super PAC, but Jamie Dimon speaks almost like a, a super PAC. I mean, Jamie Dimon says, you know, we all need to consider Nikki Haley as a reasonable and sane alternative to Donald Trump in America first. And I want to say this real quick. I thought about this last night. There's a little bit of similarity in the way people feel about MAGA and the SEC. Okay. Explain. There, just a, a certain degree of damn them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, uh, you know, that you can't tell them anything. I mean, they're, 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 you know, they're, they're so convinced in what they believe in and they're a little bit full of, you see where I'm headed. I mean, it's, they don't respect the other leagues. They don't respect the process. <laughs> they just kind of walk to the beat of their own drum. <laughs> they do things the way they wanted to do things. And that SEC bias, I mean, it's real. I mean, I, I don't deny that. I mean, I, please understand. I'm not that naive. I mean, there is an SEC bias. They've earned some of that. They marketed and branded it. Uh, some of that in favor of of themselves, but but I just think they thrive when you believe there's this bias. It's it's a little bit like MAGA. I mean, to me, MAGA's more intense when, when you when you when they believe you're out to get them. You know what I mean? The SEC seems to circle the wagons in similar ways to um to MAGA. But let's go back to Nikki Haley because if you don't believe that my suggestion several weeks ago was accurate. Um, CNBC squawk box, Becky quick, uh, Joe Kernan, some of the other pundits on, uh, on, uh, MSN, excuse me, on CNBC. They never, ever impressed me to be anti-Trump. I mean, I think they'd rather somebody like Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley be president, but it's not like MSNBC. It's not like CNN. It's not like 
uh, the you know the Washington Post or the New York Times. I mean, I, once again, I believe if you sat down at a Starbucks and had a cup of coffee with these guys and ladies, they would probably open up a little bit and say, yeah, Trump's a little bit more than we can stomach our hand. But they never impressed me to be um, anti-Trump. But, but Paul Ryan is a former Speaker of the House, uh, kind of a budget guru. I mean, that's how he made a name for himself, is better understanding the budget than most of other Republicans. He offered up some, you know, cut spending proposals that didn't go anywhere. And then I guess his um, Revy raised his national profile by running with Mitt Romney uh, as the vice presidential nominee. But he's making it quite clear that um, that there is no doubt who the establishment's candidate is. It's Nikki Haley. Now, but they have abandoned Ron DeSantis more than we're aware of. I mean, they've absolutely abandoned Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, just think about it, guys. DeSantis took $148 million, went from 36% to 17 or 18 uh, percent. These guys didn't get wealthy and ladies, you know, losing money and making bad bets. I think they're making another bad bet. And I want you to hear Ron. I mean, I want you to hear um, uh, Paul Ryan, former speaker and vice presidential candidate last week on CNBC Squawk Box. That and much more is Paul Ryan. He is now a partner at Solomir Capital and the vice chairman of Tenio. And Paul, welcome. It's great to see you here. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be back nice with to you. See you. So Good to see you too. We have had a, a slew of other candidates who have come through Squawk Box. Chris Christie this week, Nikki Haley recently, and others. Do any of them stand a chance at this point with challenging Donald Trump? Because yes. when you look at what they're 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 down by twenty yeah. points, maybe more right. in any of the polls that you see. Yeah, I think the key do not discount the Americans for Prosperity endorsement of Nikki Haley two days ago. That's actually a really big deal. And the reason that that's a really big deal is you could say that Ron DeSantis' big advantage over Nikki Haley was his ground game in Iowa, which is impressive. Americans for Prosperity has an extremely impressive ground game. Uh, this is the Koch Network's um, ground game. They just gave that to Nikki Haley. So not only does that level her up in Iowa with Ron DeSantis, that g- gives her a ground game in all these other states. And the Calendar plays to her advantage. So I'm not saying I'm a, you know, all for Nikki Haley. I'm for beating Donald Trump. I'm for any Republican who can beat Donald Trump. But I think if you had to pick a growth stock, I think Nikki's the growth stock. And the fact that she got this endorsement, I think, matters a lot. So the question is, since more than about half Republicans do not want Donald Trump to be our nominee, I'm among those half, can someone consolidate the sport in time to win? And the question, I think, right I think that, that's, that's possible. I think that's possible. Is he, it, he's got 66% in the polls, though, against the other candidates. He, he's... I'm not saying this is going to happen, but I think it's still plausible because things can still happen. She's got a lot of momentum. After Iowa, you could see a consolidation. We'll see what happens in Iowa, but you could see a consolidation. And if, and if one person can quickly consolidate the non-Trump field, I think because of these other atmospherics like AFP's endorsement of the rest, you could see you know a plausible contention for the nomination. Here's the reason. In the, in the head-to-head polls, People do better against Joe Biden than Donald Trump does. I think the only person Biden can beat is Trump. And frankly, I think he does beat him. Because you know why? Democrats come home at the end of the day. And Democrats will come home if they're motivated. And you know what motivates Democrats? Donald Trump. So I think Biden still ends up beating Trump at the end of the day. Um, but I do not think he can beat any of these other candidates. The if if Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, and Nikki Haley are up against Donald, uh, Joe Biden, they win. Nikki beats Joe Biden by like 13 points in some polls. In Wisconsin, she's beating him by 10 points. That's an incredible But poll. here's the question. You're taking one poll on that side saying that Nikki Haley would, would, would beat him. 
uh, beat Biden, that is. Yes. But then you're saying you don't believe the polls. The no, polls I do believe that actually, right no, I, that no, no, actually no. Trump would beat Biden, I, too. I, I do believe the polls that Donald Trump is way in the lead in the Republican primary. That is for sure the case. No, but it's no, almost states. prohibitively. Almost you look prohibitively. at national level, and then you but also look. States, well, that's, yeah. that's what I'm, that's, and then you look what's at going on in my mind when he asked right. it. It's, you got to state by state. Okay, but you look at the five, what is it, five of the six swing states. He was only down in Michigan, right? So what do you think that those are wrong? I mean, that's. Yeah, I think, I think, I think Democrats come home if they're really motivated. And I think, I think it's hard to motivate. And not reflected in, in, in the polls today because yeah i've been in politics a long time been through a lot of presidential cycles i ran for vice president right. in 2012 and in lots of churn happened you were up too what's that you, we were up too we were, were we were beating were at this time yeah. mitt and i i wasn't even on the ticket then mitt was beating you know barack obama i've right. seen this movie before right. and i'm saying paul Trump you motivates you saw Democrats. Musk yesterday. I mean, I have a problem with that. The first amendment stance nikki haley has on a non on, on yeah i don't agree with that either well you know, but I, I'm, she's I agree also with winning. She's almost like a neocon in certain respects. I don't want to see Joe Biden become the next president, and I don't want to see Donald Trump become the so next president. Swallow, I want to see a conservative so become the next not president. Not everyone's perfect, but Nikki Haley exactly. is as close to. Yeah. I, look, I'm not. I want just one. I'd be happy if if Christie or Ron, you know, DeSantis gets the nomination. Um, I think Nikki's in the pole position here. I think she's. I think she's getting a lot of momentum. I think it's, she's got a very strong candidacy, but I also think she's the most appealing general election candidate we've got. Well, right how, now. how soon do you need to see some consolidation around one of these candidates? It's a good question. I, I think that's a good question. I, I think basically around New Hampshire is when you have to see this consolidation come in fe by February. You know, between between Iowa Before and South, South Carolina. Carolina well, I think you'll know by South Carolina. I think either Christie gets in, stays in, or gets out after New Hampshire. Same with DeSantis in Iowa. So I think the map makes the consolidation story you for see, it. You uh, see, Governor Christie was on the other day. His contention is that once Meadows flipped... Yeah. Yeah, I've heard him say that. He's convinced there will be a felony conviction. Do, do you... Yeah, I mean, I, look, I was, obviously I'm not a big Trump sympathizer, but the problem is the people who go against him on the left, you know, make him a victim. All these New York right. cases seem pretty BS to me. Yeah. But 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 some of these other cases are pretty legitimate, uh, like the federal cases, and that's where I think he is in tough water. And again, so there's so more story to play out here. That makes it really hard for this man to win a general election. I can a tell general you, election, but what about you aren't going to vote for the guy? Does it make him uh, even more popular with the base, though? With the base, but you think the suburban Milwaukee in the wild counties are, who didn't like him before January 6th are going to like him more now? So that's, the new swing voter in America is the suburban voter, and it's going to be in four states. It's going to be Nevada, Wisconsin, Wisconsin. You're, you're suburban Wisconsin. You're growing a beard to go kill Bam. Well, I, don't li I live in rural Wisconsin. To go kill Bam, Wisconsin. Yeah, that's right. But I represented I represent the Milwaukee suburbs. In addition, not to a no, what are the four states? Not a November beard. It's a, it's a deer season. No, I, I'm a deer hunter, so this is a deer hunting beard. Um, Nevada, Wisconsin. Bad ending in that movie. Georgia and Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah. So that's where it all comes down. I think that's, that's where it comes down. You could throw a Michigan in there, maybe. What do you think about what Kevin McCarthy was saying? About Joe about, Biden. About Joe Biden and about President Trump, whether he could, about President Biden or President Trump, whether either. Yeah, I mean, look, Kevin's unrestrained now because he's not Speaker of the House. You're and, not Speaker of the House. And, I mean, yeah, so you can, when you're Speaker, you have, to, you have to mind your members and their political fortunes, and so you have to be careful about what you say so you don't screw up your members. Yeah, that's real easy so, with this caucus. So, <laughs> so Kevin is a little less restrained. Look, I, 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 I've known Joe Biden for many years. I've personally liked the man, but I haven't spoken to him personally, you know, for a couple of years. So I can't say he's in serious cognitive decline. He appears to be. We live in a visual age. 
We live in I know, that's eating. what I was saying. When Kamala and so Harris if you just look at him and you know, listen it's on to tape. his speech, he, he seems yeah. like he's in decline. On so tape. I think, that, I think he's, he's You don't very need anecdotes candidate. about what he's like at meetings that you're attending. It, it, it's all that's on right. camera. That's, that's, my, that's my point. That's my point. What, people will then say, okay, Donald Trump is only a few years younger. Is people age at different rates. Look, yeah. I, I don't want to sound like I'm defending Trump, but I think he's aging better than, 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 than Joe Biden is. Yeah, my Mon point is Charlie Trump is so toxic. My point is... What I don't want to do is blow another presidency. And I think Trump would blow a presidency for us. Not only that, well, he'll give us ticket track. He'll cost us seats again, like he did in 20 and 22, and in 18. He'll cost us seats in the House. He'll cost us seats in the Senate. I think we win the Senate no matter what because the map is so good for us. But I think we'll do better than if we have a, a DeSantis or a Haley or a Christie uh, as our nominee. You know, one of the interesting parts, parts of that yes, that's is... Paul Ryan. Yeah, that's Paul Ryan, former vice president. Uh, now, the guy he ran with... Vice president candidate. He never, vice president candidate. The guy he ran with openly says that I'll vote for Joe Biden. I'll actively campaign for Joe Biden. Now, but that's where the, the Republican Party finds itself. You've got a former vice president, who, or excuse me, vice presidential candidate that required the Trump voter to get him elected every two years in the House. And then when he ran for vice president with Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney depended on the very same grassroots activist. Trump's at about 60 ish percent. Well, I mean, let me look at the national 61.2 today. Um, wow. I mean, his, uh, his RCP betting average has gone from 35.8 Friday to 36.4, um, today. Now that's a moving target that includes another poll or two or three that we may not have had, uh, in the week, but Paul Ryan is simply telling you guys, I mean, he took seven minutes and 25 seconds to say when Trump is the nominee, and president, I don't have any power. People don't care what I say. I mean, I've talked to Nikki Haley enough. Something I picked up on. It was American for Prosperities to explain it to all of us, but then it was AFP after that. I mean, it's old hand. AFP. I don't mm -hmm. know if you picked up on that or not, but the AFP endorsement. I mean, that's his world. They built this huge machine. The machine controls all the political power, and Paul Ryan's in the room when some of these big decisions to get made unless Donald Trump is the nominee. They hate Trump. Trump hates them. But that was kind of an interesting American for Prosperities for uh, kind of explaining to the consumer uh, of political news, and then all of a sudden it's AFP after that. I mean, he knows the, the underside and they kind of inside the belly of the beast. He, he's, he's one of those guys. He is a lobbyist now. I mean, Paul Ryan is a registered lobbyist today. And all I need to know about Nikki Haley is the Koch brothers, Jamie Dimon, and Paul Ryan are 100% in her corner. I mean, to me, that, that is the absolute death nail to a campaign in the Republican primary today. But these people are so tone deaf. They refuse to accept. Did you hear Becky Quick when he said, you know, half the party? She said, well, he's just 60-something percent right. in the national polls. That's more than half, Paul. I mean, you're the budget guru. You're good with math. <laughs> I mean, 61.2 percent in the aggregate. I mean, that's a lot more than half. 60-40 is a, a, tr a trouncing. I mean, if Donald Trump today in a four-person race, and it really is a four-person race today, soon to be three, I think Ramaswamy, Probably sees the writing on the wall. I mean, do you think Haley picks up the Ramaswamy crowd? I mean, the 4.7% that are in Ramaswamy's camp? No. It's, I mean, it's at least 65-35. It's two of three. Some moron with a radio show said that <laughs> a couple of years ago. Take a break. Back in a few. 
843-661-0937. Our number, let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Brian in Florence, good morning. Hey, guys. Uh, I just heard on the affiliate network you guys are associated with that Joe Biden is not on the primary ballot in New Hampshire and in South Carolina. Is there more of a story to what the heck's going on with that? Is it uh, to allow the Democrats to just pick their candidate at their uh, convention? I mean, he's obviously not running if he's not even on the damn ballots. I don't. That's news. Are, to are me. they holding a primary? I mean, uh, like South Carolina didn't hold a primary in 2020, right? No, they just because they had an incumbent president. Sure. And um, and just kind of did it by acclamation. I mean, I, that's not the proper word. Right. It would be like a choosing a board of trustee or a judge when yes, somebody so. drops out of the race. But I don't know what the Democrats are doing with that, to be honest with you. I don't have any idea. I'll see what I can find out for you, Dave. I'll try to do some research and, and make a couple of phone calls, if not during the show, uh, maybe after the show. Thank you for the call. Appreciate that. Um, but but I, and I want to go back to, to, to Ryan because I think the reason I wanted you to, to hear that, that's what's happening in Republican land uh, as we speak. Well, he They're, was awful proud, loud and proud about and wanted to say it, I think, several times to make sure there was no doubt where he stood on Trump. Although he's a Republican, he is working against Trump. And he's got to let his clients know that. I mean, that's that's him saying face. I mean, of course. I mean, he's got clients that depend on government to work a certain way, and he's out busting his duff. I mean, he'd send a letter or email, probably an email to his clients now saying, you know, if you want to hear me stand against Trump, stand tall against Trump, go to CNBC and Joe and Becky and I, you know, Andrew R. Sorkin, uh, Sorkin's the guy that said, so you believe some of the polls, but not all the polls, right? Um, I don't know where they're getting this from, 50%. I just I was, don't. They, they did a good job questioning him, I'll say that. Well, I, mean, I want to go back to this, because this is it's just, I mean, and I said CNBC has never expressed kind of an anti-Trump sentiment. I mean, they, they would rather have a little more dignity and reverence and, you know, um, predictability in the White House than Trump. But when you when you look at the national polling, I love it when someone says, yeah, but he's only at 47 in Iowa. He's only at 46 in in New Hampshire. He's only at, well, he's about 60 in South Carolina um, with a former governor of South Carolina running. I mean, Trump's at about 58, 59. But, I mean, DeSantis is at 17%. I've read where Trump gets about two, out about 1.75 of DeSantis voters for every one he doesn't get. They don't all go to Haley. Some go to Haley. If you go to Ramaswamy, and you know that these are these are voters who take themselves more seriously than they probably should. You know, if you ask a voter who your second choice is, and they kind of elaborate, well, I mean, you know, I like this Ramaswamy guy. I like Haley a little bit. I like certain things about DeSantis. Didn't ask you that. Didn't ask you that. We asked you if DeSantis gets out and you still choose to participate. Who are you voting for? Trump's going to get more of the DeSantis voter than Haley. Period. So he goes from forty-seven in Iowa. To what, 53 or 4? P- probably 55. He's a, in, in the primary today, he's a 60, he's at least 61%. He's probably a little bit closer to 66%. Uh, percent. And once again, I have said that America First is kind of a, it's a two third plurality or majority in. Uh, the Republican Party today, the leadership doesn't want to admit that. Paul Ryan hates it with every fiber of his being. And Ryan is basically arguing against the will of the voter. Paul Ryan right. is saying, look, I'm working as hard as I can to disrupt the will of the voter. And not only am I working, 
uh, the uh, the Americans for Prosperity, AFP, you know, and the Koch brothers and Jamie Dimon. And now we got Ken Langone meeting with Nikki Haley. But all this is very organized and orchestrated. And it's only because DeSantis seems to be losing steam. When DeSantis was at 30%, he was their guy. He was the alternative to Trump. You know, we can't, Trump, Trump can't beat Biden. We got to find somebody who can. Uh, Ron DeSantis is a little bit Trumpy, and he did do some, some things kind of anti-woke and out of the mainstream, but, but he's not crazy like Trump is. We can reason, we can rationale, we can go to the White House and get our way. We can go to one of these um, agencies that Trump is, uh, in, in fact, we'll probably have a seat at the table when DeSantis appoints his new EPA director and transportation secretary. And when we need a meeting, I sure we can get that meeting um, confirmed. But, but what, what, what Paul Ryan just told you is, I have no power when Trump's the president. I mean, I, you know, my lobbying career is far less lucrative when Trump's the president. In fact, Trump may tell people, you know, um, when Ryan's crowd comes to town, don't do business. I mean, I, you know, I don't have any idea who Ryan lobbies for. I mean, we can look it up. It probably have to be disclosed who he's um who he's a registered agent for. But I can assure you that he and Jamie Dimon and the Koch brothers and some of the other major sponsors, major donors, some of the political action committees. Um, did you hear what Joe Kernan said? She sounds very much like a neoconservative, a lot like a neocon. And Ryan just went straight past that. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what you're talking about there because I think he lobbies for some of the military-industrial complex and sits on boards. That may be kind of an interesting <laughs> question. What boards does Paul Ryan now now sit on? But And here's what he's worried about, guys, and here's what all of those people are worried about. What is the value of having Paul Ryan on your board if Donald Trump's the president? It's less. It, it, it's, it's far less. I mean, that's his livelihood. That's what we fail to understand um, all these people that have fed at the trough of government for all these years, their, their livelihoods are at risk if Trump gets reelected. And, and the fear of the second go-round with Trump is that he kind of sort of knows what to do now. But the one thing I think Trump underestimated, I think even the most ardent Trump supporter will agree he underestimated, you know, the ability for bureaucrats and agency heads and the cathedral you know, those that have been there forever. I think Trump really believed, and I don't think he's a naive man by any stretch, but I think he was a political novice from, from an elected perspective, elected officer perspective. And I think Trump believed that anything of consequence went across his desk because in Trump enterprises, it does. They ain't building a hotel somewhere without Donald Trump knowing about it. I mean, they're not buying a track of land. They're not that they're not, you know, um, speculating on an old hotel to be renovated and rehabbed and refurbished. They're not selling a piece of property. That they're not consolidating a business unless it goes across his desk. And I think he believed that as long as I'm in the Oval Office, as long as I'm manning the Resolute desk, ain't nothing happening in this town without it coming across my desk. And he was dead wrong. We know how many people worked against what he was trying to accomplish. And I think now he has a pretty good grasp on that. And we've talked uh, about the, um, the organization that Peter Thiel is having a lot of um, influence with to try and prepare somewhere between 2000 and 2,500 underlings or staffers that will go to work. If Trump happens to get elected in November, 2024, these 2000, 2500 people 
are the kind of people Paul Ryan's got to go see and deal with. And he's not going to be, it's not, his career's not going to be anywhere near as lucrative with Trump as president as it would with a Nikki Haley or a, or a Ron DeSantis. But the last week has shown me that internal polling, uh, so, some of the, um, some of the strategies like Robert Cahaley, who sit down with people like Paul Ryan and discuss the path forward. I mean, they've convinced them that if anybody's going to beat Trump, it's, it's Haley. I mean, it can't, there's no way DeSantis. Once again, uh, you know, you are what your record says you are. In the national poll today, DeSantis is at 14%. But Nikki's at 10.2%. Haley's at 14.3 in Iowa. Haley's at 18.7 in, in, um, in New Hampshire. She's at about, what, 31 or 2 in South Carolina? I mean, I think the last poll I saw at Trump at about 57 in South Carolina, her home state. There is no surge. But these people like Paul Ryan are still out telling a uh, kind of a fable, something they hope to come true. And God bless Chris Christie. I mean, I've never seen a guy polling at, let's get his number. Uh, he's out, he's out, okay, Christie, well, if he's not, He's below three in Iowa. He's below three in South Carolina. He's below three nationally. He is at about uh, 11 in New Hampshire. And that's his, I mean, that's where he staked his claim. He's in New Hampshire every day. Hadn't been to Iowa. Doesn't come to South Carolina. But that cat is on TV every time you turn around. Because what's his shtick? To tell you how bad Trump yeah, that's is. Right. I mean, that's, he, he's at 3% nationally. But he's on every media network every single day of the week telling the world and anybody who'll listen how bad it would be to have Donald Trump as president. He's serving again. a purpose well, I mean, for and, somebody. And, and why, why the reluctance to accept the will of the voter? I mean, why is Paul Ryan so unwilling to accept the will of the very people that promoted and, and sustained his political career? Because they've got too much at risk, guys. There's too much at stake for people like that. Take a break. Back in a few. Well, I'm a level with you. If it was his world, he slept in a bit this morning. He probably <laughs> wouldn't have got here until about 7.30 or 8. I'll let Josh. I'd have texted Josh and said, Josh, you want your own radio show, don't you? <laughs> well, have an hour of it. I mean, have an hour's worth of training first so thing this sleep morning. In. Well, I mean, the cold whipped my butt last week. I mean, it, yeah, I'm much better today. Uh, I feel a lot better, but still got this Well, I've noticed congestion. This, uh, whatever it is that's gone around, it, it appears to linger. Because people that I know around here... Did you say that, Lenga? <laughs> I did. Lenga. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just noticed that it takes about a week or longer to run its course. Well, it's been a week for me. I mean, I, start, I started feeling bad last Sunday afternoon, night, evening. And um, and last week, was just kind of a grind. I mean, you're still kind of dealing well, with I mean, it Yeah, morning. but it's not bad. I mean, it's, it's sore throat. You know, from um, coughing after a cough. You don't cough in the middle of the day. You only cough at night when you're trying to sleep. That's when you... That's when the coughing spells hit. But anyway, I've got some cough drops, some life water, some coffee, uh, Celsius in the fridge. I'm good to go. We'll uh, we'll endure some way, somehow. We do have a special guest um, to call here in the next minute or two, Brian Kilmeade of Fox and Friends, um, we think. And he's got a radio show, too, right, that we broadcast yes, he does. on the weekends. That's right. Um, and, Kilmeade, and every night. Kil- Kilmeade will call in, we think, in just a couple of minutes. It's something that Rev and, um, and Josh – set up so um sooner than later we suspect we'll have brian kilby in, in on fact, the air he has a radio show and it's live on fox news radio across the country on different affiliates from 9 a.m to 12 noon and we actually delay it into the evening 9 p.m to midnight okay 
And he's here. I mean, he's written a book about uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Booker T. Washington, um, racial equality and the likes. I would imagine, Rev, that um, as they promote these personalities who have written books, they're thinking about Christmas and gift giving uh, time of the year. Yeah, my so, so anyway, eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Um, I want to go back to the the notion of um, I mean, you listening to my voice out there. Um, how many? What percentage of Republican voters? Because I think there's a couple of questions to ask here. Um, I'll be a country boy here for a second and say, how many Republican voters does Trump have in his pocket? I mean, that's probably a third. I mean, it may be 40% or so, but I still believe that about two of three Republican primary voters identify as America first. Now, are, are, they, are they hardcore Trump voters? Probably not. And I don't know the percentage of that. I mean, we could extrapolate some if we get Robert to come on again, and I'll try to get Robert Haley to come on before we um before we break for Christmas. But right now, we have Fox News radio, excuse me, Fox News television um, anchor and co-host of the channel's morning show, Fox and Friends. He's also host of the um, daily syndicated radio show, the Brian Kilmeade Show. Brian Kilmeade himself. Good morning, sir. How are you? Thanks for having me on, Ken. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Good to have you on. You've written a book, and it's the book is about Teddy Roosevelt, Booker T. Washington. I got to believe racial equality would be the consensus theme throughout the book. Um, tell us about the book and what motivated you to write about these two very well, important one, American figures. Well, thanks for the question. What I wanted to talk about, number one, is people keep thinking that if you love the country and, and like our history, that you whitewash it. It's not true. I mean, you tell the story of the country. Nobody I know that's patriotic says that slavery wasn't an abomination. Nobody I know that's patriotic says that Jim Crow wasn't terrible. The, the 1877-1876 compromise that got Rutherford B. B. Hayes president wasn't terrible, uh, especially in the South where Jim Crow came in, lynchings happened, Ku Klux Klan came. But it didn't for everybody. And there were people that said, yeah, we can fix it. And one of those people said Booker T. is Booker T. Washington, and he could have won anywhere. He said, "No, I like to. I have an opportunity to start this school. Twenty-four years old, started with thirty kids, thirty some of which were older than him, and he ended up graduating fifteen hundred more than Yale and Harvard. Uh, but when you graduated Tuskegee, you graduated, you knew a trade, and you had great academics. And little by little, he was changing the perception of how people viewed race relations, and people saw the black man and white man down the street." And then when Teddy Roosevelt, even though his mom is from the South and his both uh, brothers fought for the Confederacy, who still, they said, listen, we're not letting you back. They live in England the rest of their lives. He had that influence on his life, but he saw Booker T. Washington as a great man, not a great black man. And he said, how do we make our country better? How do we get the South more part of the North? After all, they were both in single digits when the Civil War came to an end. So how do we move it forward? You have to tell that they have to read a history book to know about the Civil War. They lived it. So uh, we just watched two people change America for the better and dealt with it in its, re- in its the way it was, not the way it had to be. And if you understand these two great people, you'll have more appreciation for the country, is my hope, and where we're at right now, the most successful multicultural country in the history of the world. Brian, have we accepted division more easily than maybe we should have? I mean— I- I got I, I got to level with you. I mean, talk radio is more profitable and and lucrative when the world is divided. When America is divided, 
you're talking about reconciliation. You're talking about healing. You're talking about a path forward. Um, is there something to learn from this relationship to apply moving forward in a nation that appears to be very divided? Right. Uh, if you just have a perspective of the War of 1812 when the North just said we're not even participating in this war, and when you have the Washington burned to the ground and our president, five foot two inch sickly guy, sitting on a horse by himself with no army to help him, uh, and people think, well, how are we going to come together? Things look pretty bleak now. Oh, those are bleak. Civil war, literally killing uh, 600,000 people died plus, uh, killing each other, and then still coming back together. That's divided. Do I, do I think we need to come together? Yeah. But it, it, to me, it's just part of the timeline of America. And I, I don't know if, if – um, you know, it's interesting. I never heard that expression, you know, talk radio is more lucrative when we're divided. I mean, I, I just think that if Reagan was around now and everyone looks up to him now and, you know, most people go, yeah, why, where's – even Democrats say, where's the party of Reagan? Okay. I remember when Reagan was president. They thought he was dumb. They thought he was detached. Uh, they thought he was uh, forgetful. They thought he was a shill. And I never thought that. You never thought that. But that's the way people portrayed him because they make cartoon characters of our leaders. But they're not. Um, you know, they all have uh, decent qualities. And in the big picture, I think it was we're so correctable our issues right now. And people not want to hear this. But if you have one seat advantage in the Senate, and now three in the House. Drum roll, please. You're going to have to compromise. Booker T. Washington wanted America where everyone was treated equally. But that, in certain sections of the South, that wasn't going to happen. So he said, how do we make it better? Let's compromise. Now, people were mad at Booker T. Washington for compromising. You know, W.E.B. Du Bois, a highly educated first uh, uh, black Ph.D., was like, how could you possibly allow this thing to happen? You see these lynchings happening see the KKK there, and you, you stay in the South, you don't stay enough. So uh, if I started speaking up every, every injustice, I wouldn't have a college. I wouldn't be able to graduate 1,500 people a year who, uh, who knew how to make eye contact, who knew I had a skill, were highly educated, and were, by their presence were changing the perception of, of uh, what maybe white America thought back then because they were told that by their parents. So there was what was possible. I think people got to get back to what's possible rather than what's perfect. We're never, the way our government's set up, we're never going to have, hey, I, I put together this proposal for tax reform, okay? What's going to, you need 60 votes, you need 53. Well, you need 53. I can't even get Republicans vote for 53. Well, what compromise do we have to make? Well, what if you need 60? Well, what do we have to do for 60? So let's get 60 votes. Well, guess what? Some Republicans, when they get the Senate, they're going to get the Senate back. They're going to have to compromise to get the 60 votes to get some programs through them. And people are going to have to go, yeah, we got 80% of what we wanted. But in order to get Democrats on board, we had to give up something and not think you're a failure. I think we got to get away from absolutism, which a lot of people listening to me right now probably don't want to hear. But I think they're looking at these two people's lives. They had to compromise a certain, even though they were great leaders, they had to say, okay, we got to wait. You know, we, uh, Booker T. Washington had dinner at the White House. People did not want to see a black man having dinner with a white president, and they were outraged by it in some sections, not everywhere. So they go, okay, let's not have dinner, but I'm still coming. You go, you're still invited, absolutely. Let's just not be provocative of America at that time. Let's get things done. Let, even though it's wrong, of course I should have dinner with you. Of course I should have lunch with you. If I need to stay in the Lincoln bedroom, I should be able to, like everybody else. 
But if that's not the case, how do I make things better? And that's what I think the lessons of this book is, of both men. And people can find the book how, Brian? If you go to briankillme.com, and you can get it personalized for the holidays or wherever they sell it. It's on the New York Times list for three weeks. And hopefully as I get the word out, people want inspirational story to arm you for the family get-together or for that next tailgate. Uh, and when people start running down the country, say, really? Okay, we're not perfect, but I'm going to give you two some extraordinary men uh, that really who came from nowhere to make our country better. It doesn't matter where you're from. You could still be the most impactful person in America in your generation. Why not you? If it could be Booker T. and Teddy Roosevelt. We'll explain. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate your time. Have a great day and a Merry Christmas. Thank you. Thanks so much. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Welcome back. Takes Mondays to make Fridays 843 661 0937. The SCC's happy. The ACC, not so much. <laughs> I get it. I understand it. If I were an ACC fan, I would be disgruntled. I'm not. I'm an SCC fan. They made the right decision. The only mistake they made was not including SCC brethren Georgia <laughs> as part of it as there well. You go. There's in your- fact, what about. I mean, what about Missouri? I mean, does Missouri not deserve to be in the final four? Come on. I mean, it just means more, right, Josh? Uh, sure. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, what means more? I don't know what there you go. About. There you go. So we played that bit with Paul Ryan in the last hour. He was interviewed on CNBC, and they were he was talking about his desire not to have Trump you know, be the nominee for the Republicans. And some of the uh, some of the hosts there, the interviewers that were asking the question were, you know, pushing back, say, well, you know, the voters, you know, we do have some Republican voters that uh, you know, they uh, they vote for Trump at about 60 percent in the polling. And uh, and he didn't want to believe that uh, that two thirds of Republican voters would lean America first. It's too expensive and career damaging for him to believe that. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the political establishment in the Republican Party, and this is where Drew and I kind of um, get argumentative a little bit. I mean, I, you know, I have great respect for Drew. You know that. And I really appreciate him coming um, on the show every Thursday sure. morning. We'll see him Friday morning. We'll actually be down at um, Horry County as part of a uh, kind of see, a uh, Fitz rack. Yeah, the, the South Carolina South. version of CPAC is what he explains it as. But, um, but I just believe that Haley and Trump are going to be living proof that we have an asymmetrical relationship. Because Paul Ryan for seven minutes basically said, it doesn't matter what the voter thinks. It doesn't matter what the primary voter wants. Here's what's best. I'm opposed to Donald Trump. And, and he never says, but I'll support him in a, in a general. I mean, the guy that he ran with has already said that I'll vote for the Democrat. I mean, I'll do anything it takes to make sure Donald Trump doesn't get reelected again. I just, I still believe that the inability the establishment has to change the voter of the primary, uh, the GOP primary voters' mind is kind of the, I mean, that, that's where we are today. And and, I, and I've said it a hundred times and I'll say it a hundred and one. I don't believe Donald Trump has 66% support of Republican primary voters, but I believe America First does. And I think once DeSantis gets out, and I think DeSantis is, I mean, he's not going to win in Iowa. I mean, I know they're putting all their eggs in that basket. They've got a, an endorsement from a, a governor, a, they say a popular governor, Kim Reynolds. Uh, you got, you know, this uh, Bob Bender Platt or whatever. One prominent evangelical has endorsed. I mean, they're putting all their eggs in that basket. Iowa, Christie's putting all of his eggs in that basket. 
I'm New Hampshire. What's Christie in New Hampshire? He's at 11%. He's not even on the radar in in Iowa or um, or South Carolina. There, there's no there's no sustainability here. I mean, I understand that these primaries build upon themselves. It's forward momentum. Energy breeds more energy. But but Trump doesn't have to win Iowa. I mean, if Trump loses Iowa, wins New Hampshire, wins South Carolina, wraps it up on Super Tuesday, I mean, it's still Trump by a mile. Now, I think he can win Iowa. I'm, I'm not saying he will, but I think he can win Iowa. And I'll make a prediction. If he wins Iowa, it's over then. Because 66% of primary voters ascribe to the notions of make America great again or America first. Choose your choose your descriptive. It doesn't matter to me. And, and once DeSantis gets out, where do you believe the 14%, 15% that are for DeSantis are going? I mean, I, I, Trump will get more of that vote than Nikki Haley will. I mean, Nikki will get, let's say DeSantis is at 15%. Trump will get 10, she gets 5. Well, he goes from 61. I mean, that's not a, a you know, it's not 100 on 100. I mean, is there, you don't, when you get 100% of that small portion of that, it, the commiserate number doesn't go up by 10%. But he'll get, I mean, that gets him to 64, 5, maybe even even 6. So when, when Paul Ryan says half the people who vote in Republican primaries oppose Donald Trump, he's just wrong. I mean, that's just not the case. And the data shows otherwise than that. In some of these states, that's the case. Let's go to Iowa. Trump's at 47. DeSantis is at 17. If Ron DeSantis announced today his exit from um, this campaign, Trump goes to 40. Ah, Trump goes to 52 or 3. Tim Scott's at 6%. He's not even in the race anymore. I mean, Trump's going to get some of that vote. It, it's almost like this, this Trump vote and this anti-Trump vote. And the people like Paul Ryan say the anti-Trump vote is every single voter in America that has not already pledged their support to Donald Trump. And that's absurd. I mean, that, that, there are a lot of America first voters who are less supportive of Trump than they are the movement. But when given the opportunity to vote for Nikki Haley or Donald Trump, really? I mean, really? Let's go to the phone. Verd, Marlboro County. Good morning, Verd. Good morning, Ken. Uh, looking forward to seeing y'all Friday morning. I'll be there Thursday, but uh, I'll drop by and see y'all uh, Friday morning at our first in the South Republican Action Conference. This will be the second one we've done and uh, got the agenda, and it looks like we're going to have a great uh, a great bunch of speakers and uh, a lot of great classes for people uh, that want to uh, get involved in the uh, America First uh, Republican uh, uh, movement that we have in uh, South Carolina, and it's just going to be a great event. Um, the, the way you get the primary voters and the general election voters on your side, Ken, is uh, you make promises that you keep, and uh, you make pro- uh, you don't make promises that you still keep, like President Trump did. That's the reason he has so much support because he delivered. And the people like Paul Ryan and the Swamp, they had the thing for a couple of decades and never delivered anything to the American people or the re- Republican voters, and that's the reason they have no support now, and they're never going to get it back. You know, once Donald Trump leaves, there's going to be a candidate out there that's going to come to take his place, and I don't know who it'll be, but it'll be somebody that believes in America first and believes in, in uh, putting the American people first. And uh, I just think that uh, Paul Ryan, to say that 50% of the people of voters are against Donald Trump, he's just uh, he's probably where he needs to be at. He's retired because he doesn't know really a whole lot about uh, the American people. 
But anyway, Ken, it's going to be a great weekend. Looking forward to seeing y'all Friday morning. And uh, I just think it's going to be a good weekend for us. We'll be there. Thank you, Bird. Appreciate um appreciate the invite and appreciate Drew putting us up. Uh, is Josh going? Or Josh got to stay here? I got to stay here and do his yep. thing. Yeah. Um, it'll just be the um, it'll be the high and mighty, Josh. <laughs> you'll get there one day. <laughs> yeah. Just keep getting up early and trying hard. Eventually, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you'll get there. Rev and I may send a car after you. Our, okay. Our, our right. driver may may show up and bring you down later later in the afternoon. Fair enough? That's, right. That's fair. Come, come yeah. down, we'll treat you to a buffet or yeah, something. Yeah, there you go. One of the big seafood buffets with the crab legs. With the crab legs. <laughs> Let's go to the vault. Sam in Darlington, good morning. Good morning, guys. Uh, I would like to give a thumbs up to um, Brian Kilmeade's comments. Uh, he... You know, he, he's um, said something really important that you don't, you do the best you can. And, you know, God and God doesn't require us to win every battle. He, he requires us to do the best we can. I guess you got to figure out what really is the best. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's not really compromise. If you, if you, if you get the best you can and, uh, but you you don't say that you've changed your mind on your basic beliefs. You just got the best you can in the legislative process. Then you know you've done your duty and uh, come back and try later to get more. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. My skepticism. I'm gonna be gut level honest with you. My skepticism in trying to conduct my politics in a world of compromise is fear that it'll never be portrayed that way. I think for there to be genuine compromise between the left and right, conservatives and liberals, there has to be a belief that your side of the story has been accurately and properly told. And I think so many conservatives today understand the monolith that is the media and academia and all these allied forces that have been so influenced by, by the American political left. Um, I mean, I don't want to say they have them in their pocket, but they kind of sort of have them in their pocket. So somebody who's right of center uh, let's say Josh hypothetically is left of center. I'm right of center. Josh chairs a committee or co-chairs a committee. I co-chair. Uh, well, he's in the majority. He chairs the committee. I co-chair. I'm the ranking member uh, from the other party. And Josh and I begin to, to hash out our disagreements. And Josh goes back to his caucus and says X. And I go back to my caucus and say Y. Uh, we sit down again and we try to hash out some of these genuine disagreements we have about public policy and the role of government, fundamental role of government. But, but next thing you know, Josh leaks something and I leak something because we want the, you know, those who report on the political happenings and goings on, we want them to give the public kind of an interpretation of where it is we're headed. The, the person on the right side of the debate just does not trust the people responsible for disseminating that information to tell the American people the truth. It, you know, and, and that, that, that's, I mean, that's imperative. I mean, if you're asking me to compromise and I do compromise, then give me credit for compromising. I mean, I was here. I've agreed to give up 20% of where I was to get to a place where, you know, we could get something passed and put the country on a better path forward. And I'm not saying that's all the Democrats' fault. I mean, I, I believe it's just the mindset of liberalism in America. Um, when, when, when 85%... Of, of liberal universities, and I'm talking about prestigious elite universities, I think we've agreed that there's a big difference in 
you know, the well, – I, I mean, I, I don't know if there's a huge difference in Carolina and Clemson and some of these um, elite universities, but I do believe that the Francis Marions, the Coastals, the – you know what I mean, the, the smaller liberal arts universities that have certain programs trying to educate nurses and and small business owners and, you're, you're, you know, the fundamentals of education – I don't believe they're – I don't believe that the – but I know Dr. Carter. I don't think Dr. Carter wakes up every day understanding that the graduates from his university will ultimately run the federal government. I mean, I do believe that the president at Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Dartmouth and, uh, and Columbia, some of these Ivy League schools, um, not so much Stanford. I mean, Stanford has attained kind of a perception of being even more elite than the Ivy League schools – but the Stanford story is more about entrepreneurship and Silicon Valley and technology. And, you know, a 24 year old starts a company two years after he gets out of Stanford and he sells it to, you know, Google for, you know, $25 billion. And he does whatever they do after you sell a company for 25 billion. I wouldn't have any idea. Um, but, but I think still the, the Northeast, a liberal, the Northeast elite university still believe it's almost their right Reb. I mean, not just their responsibility, but almost their right to, to educate and graduate these future government leaders. And I think once Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Dartmouth and, and George Washington and Georgetown, once they just kind of graduate, all these people and all these people begin to influence public policy and the media. I mean, the media is kind of heavily influenced by uh, that, that, that small subset of the, uh, the American people. I just think someone who sees the world as I, as I do is, is highly skeptical that if I sit down with Josh and make a deal, the media is going to make Josh the winner. I mean, the media is going to tell a story inconsistent with truth and reality. And I think the American right has to trust that academia, histo uh, historians, writers, authors, and the media are going to give them at least make an attempt to understand where it is you stand, why you stand there, and what sort of compromise you're willing to make to advance legislation that, you know, I mean, th there was a day we had that. I yeah, mean, but th now they just use it against well, you. I mean, sure they do. Sure they do. And um, and you've got the, the right media. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. You've got media like talk radio and uh, to some degree Fox News that will portray you as spineless and weak need and and not willing to stand your ground and you're going to get primaried if you aren't careful. It's a, it's just a, It's a recipe for dysfunction. I mean, it really and truly is a recipe for absolute and total dysfunction. And it's hard to argue that we aren't dysfunctionally governed as we speak today. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Matt in Florence. Good morning, Matt. You're on. Hey, guys. It's an interesting dichotomy. Paul Ryan finds it too expensive and career-ending to support Donald Trump. But 90 to 85 percent of Americans who make less than $100,000 a year find it too expensive and career-ending not to support the man. I mean, <laughs> damn, guys, I'm, I'm having to set aside core principles that I believe in right now and support Donald Trump because I want the country to survive and I want my parents to stay retired. I am not a huge Trump fan, but Democrats have shown me that they can't run this thing. This is a freaking disaster. And what the other Democrats that, you know, are kind of 
social beliefs that I wonder if they see things the way that I do, where they're like, we got to make a compromise just to keep this thing going because this is horrible right now. I don't know. Maybe these guys don't go grocery shopping or gas shopping or have to buy things. I, I guess life is easy whenever you don't have to do any of those things. But for the rest of us, it's a freaking nightmare out here. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate that. And I mean, it's only getting yep. worse. Um, it, it, I'll give you an example. How much scrutiny do we have? Another caller. Let's go. To, let's go to the call. I want to be respectful of their time. Daphne and Dylan. Hi, Daphne. Good morning, guys. I just don't know where Brian Kilmeade is coming from because I don't see any way to compromise. Because if you compromise. You're helping to destroy America. Who can compromise on, on open borders? Uh, that is costing us $490 billion a year currently, and it's endangering every citizen of America. Uh, they, they also propose to eliminate fossil fuels, which means that they will force us to comply, uh, spending trillions of dollars on foolishness, so that they can make us suffer out in the open while we struggle to buy groceries, uh, taking away parental rights to the point of uh, children's mutilation, advocating for criminals, uh, the, the fact that they also want to keep hate going. If they don't keep us divided, uh, they will not, Democrats and rhinos, will not win if they don't keep us divided. They propagate hate. Uh, also, the thing with Paul Ryan, what he did let everyone in the Tea Party know how toothpaste, as we found out about Lindsey Graham also, how toothpaste he was. Because he advocated, oh, I'm going to cut back on spending. I'm going to help as soon as he got back in office. He sat down with Patty Murphy, spent $867 billion to help Obama, and Joe Biden was in charge of that money. And nobody asked for an accounting of where it was. Obama said, I guess the jobs were not so shovel-ready. So we know how toothpaste they can be. Paul Ryan was on the board at Fox, and he tried to eliminate anyone that was a friend of Trump's. Sean Hannity's the only one that he could not harm in any way. So that, and Sean has kind of curved back his speech in promotions. Uh, also, Ken, things that people don't know about right now. And I know you said you were partial owner in some convenience stores. Right here in South Carolina, because Hugh Weathers, who is the ag guy, said on your uh, station the other day that DHEC was now going to be under the ag people and that they were going to be increasing DHEC people and give them cars so they could go out in the field and that they would even be uh, inspecting convenience stores. And American Airlines now is going to the cap-and-trade thing, stuff that Congress never did pass, even though Lindsay wrote me a letter so 
saying he was all full of that. So those are things that are happening under the radar. Thank you. Thank you. I, I do know this to the DHEC matter. There's always been scuttlebutt of, uh, of breaking DHEC up. DHEC has a, I mean, a, a, a lot of influences in a lot of places, and I've always wondered why do you run it as one organization? It's almost like DHEC, healthcare, DHEC, you know, uh, environmental. I mean, they, they're just not the same, and there's always been a talk about, you know, breaking breaking the two up. It's kind of interesting. I was sitting while Daphne was talking. What would I compromise on? I mean, what is a what is a, a worthy compromise? Because ultimately, it's not me getting what I want or you get what you want. It's make the country a better place. And now, Dave Baker may believe America's better with one way of taxation. I may believe it's better with another way of taxation. Um, let's take the, the energy. I mean, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Energy and debt. I mean, I've always believed those are where we better make some serious, serious adjustments and, and inquiries and have an understanding about it, have a, a grasp of what we're doing. Um, we made some tremendous mistakes in misleading the private sector where our future in transportation is based on climate extremism. I, I don't hear anybody now. I mean, I read the Wall Street Journal every day. I read Bloomberg and CNBC about every single day. There is nobody saying, wow, we're ahead of schedule on EVs. I mean, I've not seen a single auto manufacturer express how happy they are. They went along with the government subsidizing, incentivizing, forcing, arm twisting, whatever you want to call it, to get us down the road of EVs. I mean, it, it is a mess. I mean, it is an absolute disaster where we are today. Auto companies are losing money left and right trying to sell these EVs that they can't and nobody wants to buy. But we were told three years ago, you know, by the experts that the auto industry will embrace this, that they'll figure out sooner than later it's the right thing to do. Consumers will, I mean, they'll fly off the shelves. <coughs> Excuse me. The consumers won't be able to wait to turn their internal combustion engine into a, a Tesla or a Ford Lightning or a GM electric car or truck. And that's just not the case. I don't know if you saw this or not, but auto manufacturers are scrambling. I mean, in the, in the most major way imaginable because they followed government's lead. I mean, they allowed government to snooker them into believing, hey, take these incentives, take this money, take this, this, um, you know, this monopoly money, this fiat currency and, and transition from internal combustion. I mean, imagine that, guys. First of all, the person running an auto manufacturer that took government at their word needs to be replaced instantaneously. I mean, the, the, the only company that didn't, you ready? Toyota. Toyota said, oh, I don't know about that. We may, we may keep doing our thing until it makes a little more sense in the market um, demand part of that. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Michael in Florence. Good morning. You're on. Hey, good morning, guys. So uh, I just got off work, so I've, I'm just now tuning in to the show. But um, I tell you what, I just had to call and vent for a minute. I am so sick of this mess. I'm so sick of these politicians not being held accountable. Um, you know, how is it that they don't have to perform how is it that they are able to participate in insider trading with with impunity 
how is it they can spend trillions of dollars that we don't have with impunity? Um, how can they, you know, if, if, if I don't perform my job in a competent manner, I'm not going to have my job long. How is it that we are surrounded on the national stage, that we are absolutely surrounded by incompetence? If they're not willing to make the hard decisions and they're not able to perform in a competent manner, how the hell are they still there? Ken, what do we do? Because I'm, I'm at a complete and total loss. My wife and I were talking, and I, you know, I just thank God every day that I'm, that I'm raising my family in South Carolina where we still have an ounce of freedom, you know, that they're not pushing CRT in schools, that they're not, they're not trying to um, push all this mess on my children. But I, I'm just, I'm just sick of it, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox. Thank you. No, <laughs> I appreciate the call. That, that's kind of an interesting proposition. How do we demand competency? How do we demand efficiency? How do we demand the people we elect and entrust that enormous responsibility? How do we demand accountability from those people? Well, I mean, the first thing to me we've got to do is be informed. You've got to understand what their responsibilities are, what's good for the nation, what's not good for the nation. We can have a debate. We were just talking about EVs a second ago. There is no way any reasonable person, I understand drinking the Kool-Aid. I mean, I do that. I mean, I drink the Gamecock Kool-Aid every September. I mean, you know, this is going to be the year. Probably not, but it is, you know. So I'm drinking Kool-Aid. But but I, as I've gotten older, I don't buy a lot of BS. I just don't. I mean, I let it go in one ear and out the other. I engage and, and, and try to remain civil. And But the majority of people who speak to me, and I, I'm sorry, but this sounds lousy to say, the majority of you don't know what you're talking about. You just don't. I mean, you've, you've chosen to... Let somebody else tell you what to believe, what to think, how to react, how to respond. And and self-government can't work if that's the case. I mean, Josh has always said, and I think it's impressive for a young person to believe this, there has to be some willingness on our part to understand what it is our body politic is charged with. What are their responsibilities? We can disagree, and I think they're very, when, when, when Kill Me talks about compromise, Let's say that Josh is a little more liberal than, than Dave. And those guys meet. They're chairing a committee. They're working together on a committee. And they, they're, they're arguing over whether the top marginal tax rate should be 41% or 37%. I mean, I, I don't know what it should be. I think there's a fair debate to be had. I mean, I'd, I'd like to see revamping the entire tax code. But that's not what we're debating. What we're debating, Josh is a little more sympathetic to government. He's a little more liberal. He's at 41%, Rev's at 37%, and then they start, so so they agree at 39%. So then Rev says, okay, Josh, at what point of income, at what point of salary or income generated do we begin taxing at 30? You wanted 41, I wanted 37, we're at 39. And Josh would probably say after $150,000. And Rev would probably say, no, that's going to be 300000 it's got to be twice that. We can't tax income up to $150,000, you know, at one percentage, and after that take 40% of it. We can't do that. So, so I mean, th- those are, I mean, that's the nature of government. I mean, those are legitimate arguments to have and debates to have about where we go from here. But, but 
when, when a presidential candidate stands on a stage and says, I'm decarbonizing the economy in 10 years and 50% of all vehicles will be electric by 2030 and you vote for that guy? I mean, that's a deal breaker. He's a moron. I mean, he didn't, we're not debating 41 and 37 and 150 and $300,000 in income. Those are genuine, sincere policy disagreements about what the government needs at what amount of income I'm generated. I tend to be less sympathetic to government. But but I can respect someone who comes to the table offering that as an alternate proposal. But when a candidate says that by the year 2030, half the cars sold in America are going to be electric. And he's not saying that with some like, uh, remember when Kennedy gave the speech about in this decade, a man will walk on the moon. I mean, it was not inspirational. It was basically government controlling. We're going to force automakers to make cars, and we're going to force you to want those cars that we're forcing auto. Where's the compromise there? I mean, how do we compromise about that? I saw something over the weekend. Um, Internal combustion engine cars in America today, there's about a 43-day backlog. I mean, you're seeing some slowdown in the economy. I mean, most of the experts are already sensing first quarter, second quarter next year will probably have the beginning of a recession. Um, so, but but anyway, um, so you got about 50, 40 some odd days supply worth of internal combustion engines. Got about 110 days worth of EVs. Nobody wants the EV. The average price of an EV last year, this day last year, was 65 grand. Today it's 52 grand. Well, I mean, who's making up the difference? Uh, but the auto manufacturers have been told this is what you, you must build. We're going to incentivize you to the point that you can't afford not to build these. But, but my point is not whether or not, or not how long and what percentage of us will be driving electric vehicles. My point is there are people in America of above average intelligence that voted for a guy who said publicly, we're going to decarbonize the economy in 10 years and half the vehicles sold in America will be electric in five years, or by 2030, I think is what he said. And guess what? He won the election. I mean, if we were a serious people, and a guy said that, he gets 10% of the vote. I mean, there are dreamers. that There are people who really believe that John Lennon's Imagine is a real song, and there's a place like that somewhere out there. I mean, you know there's not, and I know there's not, but there's some dreamers out there that don't live in the real world. They don't face reality day after day after day. Mushrooms, hallucinogenics, I don't know what they're doing. Uh, Romantics at heart. There's a lot of reasons people refuse to accept and adapt the world where it is and and how it is. But, But I just, when I heard Joe Biden say that, and I thought to myself, how could anybody with above average, and I understand dummies and morons. I mean, you don't know any better. But but how could a reasonably intelligent human being believe that that's the guy that needs to be leading? The you can't. You can't do that. So for us to demand effectiveness and demand efficiency and demand competency, we got to become competent ourselves. I mean, we got to become literate about what it is we expect our government to do. What we, go, go read the Constitution. What percentage of Americans have ever read the Constitution? Is it more or less than 10%? Less. Significantly less than 10%. And it is basically the founding and guiding construct of what our government is to do and who we are 
um, to be as a group of people. And, you know, we just kind of, some guy says in the debate stage, you know, that we're going to all be driving electric vehicles in five years or six or seven years. And we're going to decarbonize the economy. And half of America said, well, that sounds good. I mean, that sounds damn good. We don't have to buy any gas anymore. Okay. Good luck with that. Well, we see now where, I mean, I, I am deeply concerned about the EV industry. Deeply, deeply concerned. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. A little fun on a Monday morning, <laughs> 843-661-0937. We're officially three weeks away from Christmas. Yeah. Christmas Day is Monday, uh, three weeks from today. Wow. A little fun with Adam Sadler. Sandler. 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 Yeah, Sandler. Uh, the eight, Sandman. Yeah, the Sandman. There you go. Uh, drink your gin and tonica and smoke, smoke your, your marijuana. <laughs> Have a happy, happy, funny slide. No, Jay Simpson. Not, Not a Jew. Jew. <laughs> but guess who is Hall of Famer? Rod Carew. You know who Rod Carew is? Um, uh, he's a Hall of Famer. Uh, he's of a great I baseball player. He, he was a um, kind of a perennial high average hitter for the Minnesota Twins back in, uh, back in the day. I'm going to get back to this real quick. I want to read a quote. Uh, General Motors CEO Mary Barra said Friday. I read this in Forbes magazine. I mean, th- this is a um, this is a real sophisticated, complicated CEO way of saying, "Oh crap!" Um, <laughs> you and I would say, "Oh crap!" But she says instead, "We are also moderating the acceleration of EV production in North America to protect our pricing, adjust the lower near-term growth in demand, and implement engineering." efficiency and other improvements that will make our vehicles less expensive to produce and more profitable. Um, moderating the accelerating of EV production in North America, adjust to slower near, <laughs> near term growth in, in demand. I mean, that's just a old crap moment is what that is. And, um, I'm not saying the EV is not the future. I hope it is. I mean, I really and truly hope we're always innovating and, and, and progressing and aspiring to be better at transporting man from point A to point B. I just think you got to let the market do that. The market does it much better um, than the government does. And anytime government does it, especially with these climate ambitions. I mean, if I, 25 years ago, if someone had said, hey, you know, the government has this climate ambition, you know what I'd have said, Rev? Huh? What, what, climate ambition? I mean, do they really believe they can control the climate of the planet Earth? Really? Okay. Um, and we're going to force people to drive a certain car that doesn't damage the climate of the Earth that they're so sure they know all about. And we're not going to let the, the market dictate how this works out. It, it, it has destroyed enormous amounts of shareholder capital. And the government is basically, at the taxpayer's expense, subsidized the shareholder capital that has been lost in this forced, ah, what about it, this forced transitioning from one form of transportation uh, to another. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jeff in Florence. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Uh, let, let's be clear. It's it's not a mode of transportation. It's a fuel source, right? Well, I mean, it's an electric car. That's a mode of transportation. Okay, but it's got four wheels and a steering wheel. Like, it doesn't fly through the air. It no, but, but it's road. a mode of, I didn't say it did, but it's a mode of transportation. Yes, yeah, which uses a different fuel source. Correct. Well, it kind of does. Well, no, it uses a different fuel source. But, I mean, it's, I mean, but, but it does, but something has to charge that EV. Right. 
It doesn't. It doesn't generate. It's it, it, a battery car holds energy. It doesn't create any energy. It holds energy. Yeah. An internal combustion like, engine creates energy. Yeah, like Einstein says, uh, no energy is ever created but destroyed. Well, I mean, I'm just saying it depends upon another source of energy for it to be able to store the energy. It needs to do whatever it it is it does. You don't think gasoline does that? Well, I mean, an internal combustion engine creates its own energy. Right. How's that gas made? Well, I mean, it, it's it's made from drilling and refining and, you know, the process of turning electricity. In. Yeah, sure, sure. Right. You know, so let, let's not say that they don't all, you, you need the energy to make energy. So it's, it's not like, you know, it's gas is just like sitting there and you don't have to do anything to get it. But I, I wanted to talk about, you said the government forcing you. You remember leaded gas. I'm sure you do. I do. Okay. What happened there? Oh, the EPA created certain regulations, and out of that came a cleaner burning fuel, and out of that came unleaded gas and lower octane ratings and whatnot, um, and, I, and I guess more friendly to the environment. Okay. And then do you remember diesel when it wasn't low sulfur? I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't remember. I mean, I, I read a lot, and I've tried to retain a lot of it, but I don't know that I can walk you through the evolution of the automobile and how we got from one kind of gas to another. Oh, so there was different fuels for these vehicles at different times. I would imagine there was. Okay. So why can't you look at this the same way? And the government had a hand in changing I don't know that the government ever demanded or mandated of manufacturers to make a certain percentage of their cars a certain way at a certain period of time. Oh, they I mean, sure did. No, they not, not right that I, I mean, I've read a lot about it, and I've never seen where the government said to an auto manufacturer, we're going to force Americans to drive this kind of car instead of that kind of car, and we need you to build this one at the expense of the other. You, you, so just just uh, on its face, like the cafe standards that exist today, which is fuel efficiency, um, how do automakers achieve that? They make a lighter car. They make a more energy, a fuel-efficient engine. Um, they make well, well, if it that, weren't for uh, big oil in the lobbies, they could probably build a car that would go 120 miles on a gallon of gas. Well, that's a great point. You just made it, and and that that's kind of my Say point. Say that again, Jeff. I just the made a great automakers you'll acknowledge lobby to stifle innovation of course why do they do that to to, to make their product more valuable to make their market shares less penetratable or penetrable they, they do it for more profit that's all a corporation does it exists to make profit i think you and i've and discussed this before absolutely we have absolutely and so the automakers um have always fought against anything that will cause them to have to spend money for other reasons than their profit motive. So it does cost them money to switch from unleaded gas or leaded gas to unleaded gas. It did cost them money to reimagine the diesel engine from a sulfur heavy mix to a light or low sulfur engine. Then they had to incorporate DEF. And so the government does dictate kind of what you're driving today already. You've seen that. 
and the consumer pays the price. It becomes a more expensive product. It, it, it does. It does. And, but there are benefits to that. Wouldn't you agree? I, I, I see very little benefit in, I see very little comparison in going from what I'll call high test gas to unleaded gas, a lower octane than I do doing away with the internal combustion engine. I mean, trying to compare those as apples and oranges to me, as far as I'm concerned. And when I was in the truck body manufacturing business and the average price of a class eight over the road truck went from 77,000 to 103,000. And it was all environmental related with the death and, and, and you know what they were doing with sulfur and diesel and all that. I mean, that got extremely expensive. In fact, we had about three years of what we perceived or what we thought was going to be a growth market turned into a very stagnant market. And we blamed the government for the increase in price of trucks and the lack of adjusting contracts so you could afford to buy more and more trucks. Yeah. It, it, and on that point, do you think that the automakers were not price gouging you? I, I don't I don't know. I mean, that, that, that's a decision the consumer has to make. Well, I mean, that's a decision that uh, colluding uh, by automakers. So, what, but but your argument is based on the premise that when the when the company or corporation increases the price based on what the government forces them to do, that's price gouging. No, but if they all get to get like so, if there's um, if there's a way to not change the market, the auto industry has always proven that they are going to stick with the status quo. Would you agree? No, I, I don't agree with that. Not at all. I, mean, I don't think you, you don't? can. No, not not in a, in, a, in a market that competitive, sticking with the status quo. No, I, I don't believe that at all. Okay, so the fact that um, every year the cafe standards are fought by all the major automakers in the world, not just U.S. automakers, doesn't like when one of them breaks out. Like GM had the Chevy Volt. I think they did and stopped making it, didn't they? Yeah, and they actually pulled them off the road. We know, like you, you, you know that an electric car is bad for a dealership because it doesn't require as much service, doesn't require oil changes, it doesn't require as much many parts. So its legacy to the dealership model is very damaging. We know that the manufacturing, like the UAW, is is fighting and they struck, they, they went on strike because an electric car requires 40% less, more part, less parts. It's going to cost jobs in the long run, right? So is it a bad thing? It is for some people. I, I don't think but, it's a bad thing, Jeff. See, I've never said the EV is a bad thing. I think the government forcing the transition in about 25% of the time that I think the transition will take for the market to address some of the inefficient. That's always been my complaint and consideration. And I'm not offended at all that, that car companies are trying to make as much profit as they can. And I'm not offended at all that me and you as a consumer are trying to save every dollar we can and find a, a that, that to me, that's the beauty of the free market. It's not perfect. I, I've never suggested that capitalism doesn't need to have guardrails. Um, it needs to have some some uh, some guidance, some, some some oversight. I'll accept that, but that's not what we're doing here, Jeff. And you know that's not what we're doing. We're forcing an industry, a very important industry in our nation, to stop doing what they've historically done 
and adapt to a newer and maybe better model, but not because the market is ready for it, not because the data shows this to be the case, but there, there are some in government that have these radical climate ambitions, and this is their way to implement. And I do believe there's playing favorites. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the auto industry fights against this. Well, I mean, I would imagine the green energy fights for what the auto industry is fighting against. But there's always been that, you know, I'm lobbying one side, you're lobbying the other side. I'm consulting one side, you're consulting on the other side. You know, I'm for green energy. I'm not as for green energy. My, my point has always been, I think we're all better off as consumers if the free market controls how fast or not the transition takes place. I'm not opposed to EVs. I've never been opposed to EVs. I don't think our economy is ready for the current construct of EVs in 10 or 15 or 20 years. Maybe we are. But but I think what right. the government is selling us and forcing auto manufacturers to do is unrealistic. So... So there was a push for EVs in the 90s, and we saw them in the marketplace in, in the 90s and 2000s, and then the automakers pulled them back. That, that's, that happened. And if you, you, you talk so, about So what's that, wrong with that? What, what's wrong with if auto manufacturers made EVs and then decided to not make them anymore? What's wrong with that? Well, it, you just have to... If they've done some studies and they realize that an EV is going to be bad for their legacy business model, do you see that as? I would say if I ran a car company and I did that study, I would stop building EVs. That's exactly what happened. So what is happening now? Why why are the auto manufacturers now saying the exact same thing they said then? Right. Tesla's not saying it. Like, look. I'm not saying, like, if, if GM, like, uh, doesn't want to produce, I mean, they produce the, you know, some EVs. Um, I, I'm with you. There shouldn't be um, a regulation that an X percentage of cars have to be EVs. I mean, if California decides under the state's rights that they want 30% of the car sales per year to be EV, that's their right to say that, right? Agree. Okay. I don't have any problem with that. I, mean, I, I really don't. Yeah, if a state determines that they want to have no internal combustion engines by 2030, that's their right to do it that way, right? Correct. Okay. So there's no problem with that. But if you want to talk about where the free market is headed, why don't you look at what Exxon's doing, Chevron's doing, Shell's doing? What do you think they're investing their money in? I would imagine green energy. Green energy, alternative fuels. But but you're you're making it sound like you're trying to play. You're you're making it sound like I'm opposed to green energy, and I've never said that. I think no, the I'm period not, of I'm time we're trying to evolve is unrealistic. Let me ask you a question: Do you do, do you believe that the government is bribing big auto to build electric vehicles? I believe they're incentivizing them to build uh, electric vehicles. I do the. You know the tax rebates, trying to make them more affordable. Yeah, they're they're spending money on that. No different than we cut our royalty fees to oil companies drilling on American soil. Do you believe the consumer is being charged an excessive price because the government is bribing auto manufacturer to build a certain kind of car? Uh, do I believe that? Uh, charged more by the auto companies because they're being mandated to charge more. 
Um, no, I think uh, I think if you want an electric vehicle, you're a person who will pay extra for it, um, and that's free market, right? But there's not much in the free market about this. I mean, there's just not. Jeff, we got to take a break. We've gone a long time, and I enjoy the debate. I mean, that's not an argument. That's a, a legitimate conversation we've had. But but the data's clear now. I mean, they they are these auto manufacturers that were bribed to build a certain car are just losing too much money. And they're abandoning some of the government incentives and goals. I mean, I think um, I think GM was uh, their goal was to build about four hundred thousand electric vehicles through mid twenty twenty four. I don't know if you saw this or not, but the Volkswagen Group, largest auto company in the world, canceled plans to build about a two and a half billion dollar EV factory in Germany. I mean, they just canceled it altogether. And I know Volkswagen is not a big brand here. But it's the biggest auto manufacturer in the world. Take a break. Back in a few. Let's ask a simple question. We'll go to the phone in two seconds. Josh, answer these questions. If there was a car that was more affordable, more efficient, needed less service, was more dependable, was a cooler car to drive. I mean, what, what, what? You know, than what we have offering today. You'd drive an electric car. Heck yeah. But it's not. It may get there one day. I mean, we may have all those answers um, to the questions that we don't know the answers to today. Um, affordability. And I do believe there's some nuanced uncertainty about, I don't know, man. I mean, I don't want to get in a car with my family and not know where to charge these things. And will the charger work or not? Is the charger like one of those air pumps? You know, they work half the time and half the time they don't. I think buyer uncertainty is a big part of this. Um, but at the end of the day, when the EV gets to be a better choice than the internal combustion engine, Ford will have all the reason in the world. GM will have all the Toyota, all these companies. I mean, the market will have dictated, okay, we're ready now. Now, now, I'm not naive, and I think Jeff hit this. Will, is, is GM and Ford willing to forsake all the profit they've ever made in their service department? Probably not, but the consumers will force that. I mean, if Toyota's making... Um, an electric car that outperforms GM and Ford. GM and Ford can't just say, yeah, but I mean, we're fixing cars and our service centers and we're making more and more money. Sooner or later, you just lose your market share. You're not competitive in in that space. And that's all. When, when I say things like, well, the problem with what the government is trying to do is they're putting at risk enormous amounts of shareholder capital because of some climate agenda that some extreme leftist has, then all of a sudden the the left hears that he's opposed to EVs. That's not true. I mean, that's unfair. It's 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 not at all what I said. I am for whatever the best mode of transportation turns out to be, and I gotta believe, and I've said this before. I gotta believe that the first day the blacksmith saw a buggy with an engine, he laughed, and then he saw another, and then another, and then another. And sooner or later, if he had a decent business acumen, he put a for sale sign in that blacksmith window. I mean, he saw the writing on the wall. That is the beauty of the free market. Putting a, putting a shoe on a horse to pull a buggy, and here's something smoking and clanging going down the road. <laughs> Who would buy that stupid thing? Well, the next <laughs> thing you know, it's improved a little bit, improved a little bit. And if the blacksmith is smart, the first the smartest blacksmith puts the for sale sign in his window before anybody else. It's called the free market. 
It seeks better ways to do things if left to its own volition. And once the market gets there, the government won't have no, to use when it, our taxpayer money to subsidize. But I mean, these even things. with the tax credits and subsidies, people aren't buying these things because they're not a better option. That the consumer has decided that's just not as good an option, even with the credits and subsidies as this other is. My my point is: look at the shareholder capital that we've destroyed that is being somewhat subsidized by the uh, the taxpayer. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Cross Hill. Good morning. Uh, good morning, fellas. Uh, great discussions this morning. I agree with you 100%, Ken. Um, for, for, from my perspective, whenever an electric vehicle becomes as easy to refuel, recharge, as they take, you know, in, in about five or six minutes, uh, I, I think the market will certainly be more interested in that. And so the ease of refueling and the range of these things is a bit, is a big factor, and the cost certainly needs to come down. Um, Jeff's discussion was very interesting right there. The question I, I wonder about is, and maybe you can have some idea about this, Ken, what percentage of the national electrical grid is actually fueled by uh, green energy versus fossil fuels? Fossil fuels about um, 75 to 82 percent. I've seen it as high as 82, as low as 75. Okay, so as we try to kill fossil fuels, look what we're doing to a, a, a non-dependable energy source to fuel our national energy grid. And I want all you guys, I've, I've said this on several calls over the, over the years, I suppose, since I've been touching base with you guys. You know, uh, in, in going to a college football game and looking at an offense and looking at a defense, what that offense tries to do is distort that defense with a whole bunch of eye candy. And we're focusing on just one aspect of what is a bigger movement here. These people could care less about climate change. I encourage all of the listeners that like to go out there and Google around things, Google the degrowth movement. This is all part of the plan to bring down the greatest economic machine that's ever been created. The, the energy focus is the way that they finally centered in on a way to do it. And so we got a lot of eye candy going on here. We got the climate change issue. We've got the border that's creating uh, all kinds of pressures on our system. And the whole goal is to bring our economic system down. They hate the capitalistic system and they want the movement towards socialism. So that's my two cents worth in this discussion this morning. It's been a great show. Uh, I hope y'all have a good afternoon. Thank you. And if I want to get out on that conspiracy theory limb early on a Monday morning, you ready, Josh? That's the Obama factor. Ooh. I mean, that, that's everything Sam talked about is the Obama factor. I want to transform America into what? A non-free market, you know, government-driven economy. I want to transform America into what? Into um, something that finds itself more acceptable to the rest of the world. Not not pursuing excellence. I mean, I, I don't want to use the word American exceptionalism, but but I think that flies in the face of the Obama sentiment, the Obama factor. Um, guys, there's a couple of books out there. David Samuel, David Garrow. I mean, I, I know I beat this dead horse, but it's worth exploring. They've done some of the work that should have been done before we elected Barack Obama president, and they went really, uh, they, they got deep in the weeds on what makes this guy who he is. And the Obama factor is about him trying to transform the nation 
and the acolytes that still inhabit many government agencies and these extreme climate agenda, um, you know, the, the, the pursuit of a kind of a, a socialist economy, uh, that's kind of, that's where we are. You know, the, the interest, the irony in all this, I mean, to me, the most ironic part of all of this and is that, you know, those running against Trump say the biggest danger Trump brings to the table is the legitimate threatening of democracy. And I'm thinking about, wow. So you want to tell me what kind of car to drive and when you, you, you want to turn America into France or England. You want to basically, um, uh, decarbonize the economy. You want to destroy the dollar. You want to do all these, these things, but he's the threat to democracy. <laughs> you want to leave our borders wide open. But, I mean, but, but that goes back guys. And this is not, I mean, this is not an extreme conspiracy theory. Obama was a transformative president. He said as much, we are the ones we've been waiting on. And Obama was not going to stop at, you know, is the top marginal tax rate supposed to be 44 or 39%. I mean, they, that, that bored him to no end. I mean, he wanted to radically transform our nation into something unrecognizable to most of us who have ascribed to kind of a constitutional belief in limited government and states' rights and all these. No, 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 no. That's not, I'm the consummate central planner. And I've, I've said it before. At the beginning, I said he's a redistributionist, collectivist. And then I kind of, nah, he's probably a socialist. He, he, yeah, he might be. A, I'm convinced now he's probably a communist. I mean, I, I believe that. I mean, the more I read, the more I study, the more I understand, the more I watch his acolytes at work, the more I'm convinced that, I mean, you know, does he love America? Not, not the America you and I love. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Got trivia in just a couple of minutes. David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, good morning, Dave. Uh, man, when I heard Brian kill me, I was said to myself, golly, somebody must be trying to sell a book. Uh, Ken, uh, how do we get a book deal? Start writing one, I guess. I don't know. I would say our life experiences would be pretty interesting. Uh, I'd have to clean mine up know, a lot, David. I'd have to. I'd have to leave out about half of it. Well, I, yeah, keep that to yourself, man. Uh, but I'm just thinking about uh, thinking about Jeff. Uh, you know, that's how the Bidens made their money is book deals. Uh, that's how they've made their money. But. Uh, I'm thinking about, uh, did you watch some of this football over the weekend? The best game of the weekend was at South Lawrence versus Westside. Did you have a chance to watch any I of that? I didn't. I watched a lot of college and no high school. I watched it. I tell you what, man, that if you want to see raw, I call it raw, raw guys going out there playing football, it's not this where they're getting paid to do it. They're just going out there on the free will and trying to play good football and uh, the beauty of it, uh, South Florence, they had old school football, man. They ran like 47 times for 370 yards back, back in the day. We used to do that, but I will say this about this whole ED thing. This is, we got old, uh, I call it Joe Scrooge and Ebenezer Blackrock. Uh, this is an energy Christmas carol. And, you know, think about it, the old uh, Charles Dickens, and we're looking at the future, but we're trying to force it into right now. And who's making money off of this ED industry? And that's all I need to say.
Have a good day. All the solar boys and the, and the green energy crowd, you know, they're all making a, a lot of money. And, and look, when politics and business converge, there's winners and losers. One of the, one of the, my takeaways in my time in politics, especially as, as lieutenant governor, when I bang the gavel, the A's have it, the nays have it. Guess what? Somebody just won and somebody just lost. I mean, upstairs, they're the lobbyists. And, you know, one side's lobbying for X and another side's lobbying. And I don't know what deal they made every time. The majority of times I know, you know, okay, he's working for such and such and she's working for such and such. And they're trying to get this done and they can live with that and not live with something else. But it don't know me. Every time, you know, if all the senators voted and then the clerk would tally the vote and I'd read the vote and, you know, the eyes have it or the nays have it. It don't know me. I don't know how much money somebody just earned or not, or how so much, you know, um, in other words, if, if Josh hires me to go lobby in Columbia and Josh has a contraption and it needs government help and I go up and, and there's two pieces of legislation and we shepherd, we nurture, we get that bill uh, in front of the Congress or in front of the house and then in front of the Senate. And it looks like it's going our way. And then it doesn't, I mean, Josh just wasted a bunch of money. I mean, he hired a guy he thought could carry the water and nurture and shepherd that bill. Um, and he couldn't. So, so it, it, you know, there are a lot of, I mean, the gears of government, and it's not just the gears of government, it's the gears of government being distorted and manipulated by people who have personal interest and business interest. And that's kind of the convergence of, so, so you know, and that goes back to, and, and Rev kind of like, well, okay, here he goes again. Uh, you don't follow the money some of the time, most of the time. You follow it all of, of the time. And, you know, when, when somebody says, hey, we're going to make everybody drive electric vehicles. But the first thing I think is, yeah, and if somebody's going to get paid a lot of money to try and convince government to go um, that way, John Kerry, Al Gore come to mind. I mean, to me, they're, they're con men. They're snake oil salesmen. The, 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 the meteorologist in a lab at one of the most elite weather institutes in America, he's not a con man. He may be wrong. He may be right. He may profit. He may not. But I don't look at that guy as a con man. I mean, I look at John Kerry as a con man. I look at Al Gore as a con man. You I see what he no... said about coal plants over the weekend? Yeah, I did. Uh, well, I mean, that's not surprising. Is it yeah. to you? Oh, no. So, so what do we say it. So where do we get our energy? I mean, about 80% <laughs> of our grid is fossil fuel generated electricity and power. <laughs> you charge those cars, yeah, John. I mean, uh, that's just, but that's John Kerry. Once again, one of these meteorologists and weather experts at a, at a, at a lab somewhere devoting his life and he thinks he's on to something. I don't have a problem with that guy. I mean, it's pretty arrogant for me to believe that somebody can predict what the climate of the planet Earth is going to be 100 years from now. But I mean, I, that guy's genuinely, sincerely dedicated to the science of weather and the science of climate. But John Kerry and Al Gore? I mean, you've got to be a moron to listen to what they have to say and not believe it's tainted with, you know, money and, and power. Let's do some trivia. Josh, you ready? Got about two or three minutes here to get some trivia in. I want to thank our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. First correct answer, went to six-pack of Pepsi product, couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts, courtesy of our good friends, our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. I want to be fair to both conferences. You ready? The SCC and the ACC. ACC feels like it got screwed. I think the SCC got screwed by not having half the teams. <laughs> Texas will be in next year, so it'll be like it's supposed to be, half the teams. Half the teams for the SCC. Uh, but I'm not a homer. I'm a fair-minded oh, yeah. and objective soul. Oh, I'm no, not a homer at no, all. No. Um, 
one of our callers texts you or puts on Facebook, Homer. He's right. He's right. I mean, I, I'm a Homer. Right. We all are to some degree. Um, but here's the question, and it relates to the SCC and the ACC. UCLA has won 11 national championships in college basketball. What SEC team has won the most of all the other SEC teams? And what ACC team? I need both schools. I need the ACC team that has won the most national championships in college basketball. And I need the SEC team that has won the most college basketball championships. 843 661 I'm looking for two schools. SEC team that has won the most national championships. Neither has won as many as UCLA. But but both have been very prominent and blue-bloody in, uh, in the college basketball world. Hi, you're on the air. What's your guess? North Carolina and uh, Georgia. Nope. North Carolina and Georgia is not right. Do we have another guess? 843-661-0937. UCLA's won 11. What SEC schools won the most? What ACC school has won the most? Hi, you're on. What's your guess? I'm going Duke and Kentucky. Nope. Duke and Kentucky is not right. 843-66. We're all over. Uh, let's go to the phone. <laughs> Hi, what's your guess? You're on. I'll say Duke and Kentucky. Nope, nope. You're close, but no cigar. Let's go to the phone. I'm going to wait for the lines to clear. Okay, Here we I'm go. sorry. Hi, you're on. What's your guess? Hello? Hey, you're on. What's your guess? Uh, North Carolina and Florida. Nope. Wow, we're all over it. Ooh, certain combinations we're just not hitting yet. Hi, you're on. What's your guess? North Carolina and uh, Kentucky. You're right. North Carolina has won six national championships. Kentucky has won eight national championships. Kentucky is second. North Carolina is third to UCLA's 11. Hmm. Um, who is this and where are you calling from? Aubrey Montrose. Okay. Mr. Montrose, thank you for calling. We'll get back to uh, Josh. We'll get your information, and we'll get you squared away with a six-pack of Pepsi product. A couple of takes Mondays to make Fridays T-shirts, courtesy of our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Speaking of Pepsi of Florence, we need your help. Uh, we really need your help. We're partnering with Pepsi of Florence, and I'm saying that community broadcasters. Um, we've identified six families. They are and will remain anonymous. They have been identified by the youth mentors of the PD and the Boys and Girls Club, we need you to help us. We need to raise money for these six families. Um, we've got a website set up. You can make a contribution or donation for however much you choose, but we're trying to honor and pay our respects to the late Mr. Frank Avant. How can they make a donation, Just Rev? go to the live953.com website and click on the Season of Giving slider there near the top of the page, and it'll take you right to the donate page. Okay, and we really appreciate it. We'll talk. Tomorrow, enjoy your day.